We know of new methods of attack. The Trojan Horse. Greetings and welcome back to another exciting installment of the Fifth Column Podcast. It's a special edition, SCOTUS Week. This is not an emergency podcast, but it happens to coincide with uh, with the culmination of a number of things. I'm Camille Foster. I am delighted to be with you. I'm joined uh, by Matt Welch, Michael Moynihan. They are in New York. I am not. I'm mm-hmm. in, uh, in just outside of Washington, D.C., at least for a couple more weeks. Uh, and uh, gentlemen, it's it's a pleasure to see you. There's it's been a hell of a lot going on. A lot Great, going many on. things. Can I stir this drink uh, with think, this pen, or is that no? That's fine. That's, that's fine. what it's for. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, that's perfectly acceptable. So gross. This is like the most hobo shit I've ever done. Wow, that tequila is uh, not going to mix itself. No, last right. week when we were getting started, Moynihan, there mm-hmm. was uh, a situation unfolding in Ukraine. Well, actually, yeah. in, in Russia. Yeah. Um, but involving the Ukraine situation and and things have. At least somewhat <laughs> calmed down. Yeah, it didn't go the way that they thought. Plenty yeah. of uncertainty. Yeah, um, there is that. For but this sure. week, but this the week. major news domestically uh, is the Supreme Court, where there have been a couple of uh, consequential decisions that have come down, uh, and there is a lot of breathless media coverage. And that we're going to talk is about making that people crazy. It is making yeah, with everyone a, crazy. With a uh, our our one of our favorite guests um, and someone who is a reliable thoughtful uh voice of reason uh-huh see what i did there yeah um who gives us some some great insight <laughs> gives us some great insight there is literally nobody smarter course. on this issue we've had look i i love all you other people that are academics and lawyers and law professors and you're all great we love you all there is nobody that is more concise and can package something so that even a dummy like me understands it than the great Damon Root. <laughs> Damon Root is a brilliant, brilliant person. And every time he comes on, he's like a very, he's a repeat guest. We always get emails like, he's really brilliant, isn't he? Yeah. They never talk about what he said. They're just like, he's really, really a smart guy. They can, and that is they true. They can smell his like uh, sleeve tats. <laughs> yeah, they can the smell <laughs> his, his metal. Um, <laughs> that's with a T-A-L, by the way. Yeah. I just wanted to say, before we started, that the most amazing thing to me, and we know this, and this is kind of what we talk about a lot on this podcast, cable news really destroys people's brains, doesn't it? It just mm. makes them, when you have to have a take for everything every night, and to get the clip onto Mediaite, and to get noticed on Twitter, you have to be, I mean, the incentives are all totally wrong, you have to be more extreme and more extreme. I cannot believe the level of stupidity that I've seen from these um, people that, and by the way, it makes and breaks people so quickly. Who is this like Ellie Mistal or, do you know this guy? Yeah. Yeah. Well, who uh, the hell is this guy? Uh, he's was a legal commentator on like the MSNBC weekend shows that I used to go on. Maybe Camille was on once or twice. Um, like the David Gura stuff, the Melissa Harris Perry, um, uh, Joanne Reed before she uh, got nightly. And they would have mm-hmm. shows in which they would have people who disagreed with one another sit around and talk oh, that's for interesting. more or less an a hour. Novel idea. <laughs> um, <laughs> they don't. Okay. And and he's one of the rising stars of that. He has kind of uh, uh, Don King hair, sort yeah. of like uh, goes yeah. goes up and it's white and gray. Well, his ideas are not going to get him very far. And he's uh, <laughs> and he's big and he's funny with a quip and whatever. And he's one of the stupidest legal commentators I've ever he has ever a piece seen in my life. Uh, yesterday. The Supreme Court, and this is in the Nation magazine, um, who I think are still, um, you know, back at the office trying to prove that Alger Hiss was not a Soviet spy. The Supreme Court has killed affirmative action. Mediocre whites can rest easier. That's from uh, from Ellie uh, Miss Mistel. How do I say it? Mispronounce whites. 
Yeah. Whites. Whites. Thank you. <laughs> that is in just his um, Twitter feed has been really something else. Um, we should expand the court. That's all of his um, stuff today. Yeah. We have to expand. <laughs> we'll, we're losing. We have to expand the court. So when, it, it, to me, by the way, that is very similar to Donald Trump losing and saying, I didn't lose the election. We got to recount it. We got to do all this stuff to just lo- lose and lose gracefully. But like, we don't want to lose again in the future. So we have to stack the court. It's FDR tried it. It's not going to work. The one thing that I was really um, amused by was these dissents. Oh my Lord. I've been sending you guys passages from these dissents, uh, particularly from the Sonia Sotomayor uh, dissent, uh, which was on the, um, on the gay case. gay case, the gay website case. 303. Yeah. Right. Well, the, this is the, the person who theoretically, theoretically might have been a baker who yes. baked cakes yeah, nothing and happened. didn't want to bake cakes for yeah, this is, gay couples yeah. this is because design. she is a, a it's not, Christian, a devout Christian. It's not, it's not cakes. cake baking. It's uh, it's website designing. Yes, website design. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Website design. Website Sorry, designing. The, the, cake, the cake baking was the other She case. hasn't gotten the, te- the, the assignment yet. But she yeah. knows she's not going to take it. <laughs> That's what. Yes. <laughs> um, so Senya Sotomayor wrote a dissent yeah. that was a reading. It was a dissent into the stupidity of Sonia. I'm not sure. It was. It was. I didn't. I don't know. It was like a chatbot AI wrote it in German and then Google auto translated into English. It was just completely incoherent. But I love. That this is a terrible dissent. It's like, by any, any measure, it's just very badly argued, very badly reasoned, really, really poorly written. And I, I love these words. There's a, there's a slate of about four or five words, and you know this, Matt, as a journalist, that um, the news, news media is going to come up with. The actual ruling, and much like the affirmative action ruling, the affirmative action ruling was very, very well rendered. I thought it was like, regardless of whether you agree with it, I thought it was well rendered, well written. Thomas's bit especially was 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 really interesting. And um, it never gets that adjective, but this is the adjective that uh, Sonia Sotomayor, the wise Latina, um, gets from Mediate. In the dissent, this is the headline, Justice Sonia Sotomayor wrote a blistering critique. Mm. The Hill, Sotomayor blasts court in scathing mm. dissent on same-sex wedding case, it's not about a same-sex wedding, it's about a fucking website. Like, it doesn't exist for a wedding. Daily Beast. Sonia Sotomayor pens withering dissent in gay discrimination case. People Magazine, which is my favorite. Sonia Sotomayor pens, it's always penning. Just write the fucking thing. <laughs> Just typing the fucking thing. When the simple for word, be, be Orwell about this, the simple word can work here. For AIDS or control Ving Twitter. A lot of Go control, on. yeah. Pens stunning rebuke. Woof. A stunning rebuke. Withering dissent, scathing dissent, blistering critique. It is the laziest, flabbiest thing I've ever read. In this is so much wish casting from people like, oh man, she, you know, we lost that one, but God damn, was she just withering and scathing. And it's like, um, we can read some bits of it when our friend Damon Root comes on in, a, in just in a few minutes. But um, that was not the, the, the sort of feeling I got from it. I don't know if you read it. I have read uh, snatches of a lot of the dissents and especially the ones that were um, citing facts that aren't true. Yeah, um, lots like of those. There's a, an epistemic closure uh, argument to be made and I'm, uh, I'm eager to uh, talk. Is that the to one that cited both – because her cited both the Pulse, Pulse Nightclub night shooting and Matthew Shepard? Yes. 
Uh, when are, <laughs> when are we going to learn that, that oh my those God. things weren't as originally yeah. advertised? Yeah. But Moynihan, you wanted to talk a little <laughs> bit before we get Damon on about your uh, little uh, RF. Uh, oh yeah, yeah, just one thing I wanted to say because I know some of you have uh, will tune in for this <laughs> kind of thing. Um, go back and listen to the last episode we did with the great uh, Coleman Hughes. Our friend, and as I said at the beginning of last episode, Camille's protege. Um, <laughs> he's Lame. a protege. I'm going to let you say that. It isn't true, but yeah, I'm going to yeah, let you yeah, say it anyway. Yeah, he, he's the protege. Like gnomes. Uh, yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. And as I said, the protege has overtaken the teacher. Mm. Um, <laughs> and that annoyed mm. Camille quite a bit. But um, I, I there's, there's no competition. Yeah, there's, there's, uh, in my mind, there is. And you're losing it, <laughs> motherfucker. <laughs> I'll tell you what, there is nothing, there's no issue that uh, drives people in usually a reasonable space uh, more crazy than we discovered than RFK. That apparently. really drives people nuts. They go crazy. And so I just wanted to say that on the next um, paid episode, you, you think I'm incentivizing you here? Uh, I will be addressing some of the uh, concerns that people had. So, some people... Mm. We're very positive, and uh, nobody's on the fence about this. There's no middle ground. You guys both did great. As we said, I ended up Coleman and I um, jousting a little bit, and he was he was great. He was he was very. It was in a, a, a friendly spirit, except for one time I got really mad, and then I, I cut it out because I was just being a dick. <laughs> I want to. I got to confess that. Tell them. I got to confess it. Tell them that. It, it's yeah. fine. It's, I'm a Catholic. Catholic. This is a Catholic yeah. podcast, is it? No, yeah. it's Jewish. There was, there was a, a near podcast. apology even in that particular circumstance. Yeah, I so was, was right. It's just I handled it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, yep. I'm joking. I, I, like, yep. I just like to get the comments on, on the wethefifth.substack.com um, saying, like, I wonder what it was. I just <laughs> yeah. got to get them telling me. I wonder what he did. Yeah. I was yeah. in uh, Long yeah. Beach on vacation, and thank you both. I'll for... just say this, by the way. Um, he... Jeffrey Tubin is his favorite writer. Continue. Uh, and <laughs> I was at uh, Hialeah's house once again for a Shabbat dinner. And this time I had the uh, the wonderful opportunity to meet her uh, mother and father, who are fantastic. Yeah. Uh, and The, the American? Uh, yeah. Israeli. Uh, American. American. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yael's the Israeli. Yeah. Um, and I'm, uh, I'm, I'm accusing them all of dual loyalties. And Hialeah, or uh, Hialeah's dad, was busting her chops for going too easy on me when I was on the Ask a Jew thing. He said, hey, it wasn't there was there wasn't yeah. Come on, you didn't, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, it was, didn't go after. It was the embarrassing. Gentile. It was yeah. embarrassing. Yeah, you don't let um, Gentiles off like that. But he uh, put the questions like, "Why do you think so many uh, Jews and Orthodox Jews like this podcast? Why like your podcast?" And like, mm. we, I couldn't, I didn't have a satisfactory answer uh, because we we're friends of the Jews. I mean, yeah. I have I have very consistently <laughs> referred to myself uh, as the Oscar Schindler of Bedford Stuyvesant. Mm -hmm. uh, I will hmm. review the whole, not Bedside. I am, I am uh, a, a, a saver of Jews um, hmm. in a modern context. I mean, it's not like the war. I'm just like like they they don't have a swipe on their card on getting in the subway. Right. I'm like, let me let me swipe yeah. through. Mm -hmm. It's Schindler like. Yeah. <laughs> but not the situation is different. I mean, if I if, if I was in that situation. Uh, I would have had a factory yeah. that I would have like saved people. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm on well, the I'm on the wall at Yad Vashem. I mean, I yeah, wrote my name in, <laughs> yeah, in like a ballpoint pen. But you are definitely equally brave <laughs> yes, and selfless, of course. And that's what's I really am important. among the righteous of now. Uh, Amen. Um, actually, Amen, uh, Camille is among the righteous now. You know well, why? That's true. Because we were leaving my apartment one time. I think we told this story, uh, recording the podcast at the very beginning of the pandemic. And, Williamsburg uh, tapes. Williamsburg. And we were um, very uh, 
you know, deep in our cups. And Camille uh, yelled at somebody uh, <laughs> who was yelling at a Hasidic Jew in an anti-Semitic way. Is that true? That you don't happened? remember that? I barely remember vaguely. Wow. Was yeah, that superheroes yeah. don't remember? Was that the Nancy true. snoring on it's the true. podcast? It was just a regular night, day for me. Yeah. yeah, it was just a regular day. <laughs> oh my yeah. gosh! Yeah, Camille, how yeah, many Jews a... did you see, like save today? <laughs> hey, hey, LBJ, how many Jews yeah. did you save today? That's, That's me. Yeah. So anyway, I'm glad uh, it took us ten minutes to go completely off the rails. Yeah, yeah. Well, but we'll, we'll just talk uh, to Camille about like affirmative action. Yeah. yeah, but you know. Yeah, it, really um, going to do such a victory lap. It's great that he's pacing himself. He's just sitting there going, "Yeah, he's uh, yeah." <laughs> you do understand, Camille, that from yeah. some of the stuff that I've read today, uh -huh. um, beyond like we have to pack the court oh, and we have man. to assassinate justices or whatever they're saying, is that racial justice man, is man, over. Got a fancy new in job. America, Katanji nice uh, uh, Brown yeah. Jackson. Um, I always want to say Katanji Jackson Brown because I think of Jackson Brown mm -hmm. and like. You know, Daryl <laughs> Hannah and, and the doctor my eyes, yeah, all that stuff. But uh, doctor my black eyes. Yeah. <laughs> wow, that's not a race thing, by the way. Look up, look up what we're talking about. <laughs> I think Damon came in. Damon, right Damon, when Damon Rue comes in, he'll know exactly what we're talking about. Jackson Brown. Um, I was going to ask Camille um, about the victory lap and about how happy he was. Um, <laughs> <laughs> discovering what I discovered on the internet today, that there is uh, racial progress is done in this country. Um, freedom is now only for mediocre whites, uh, according to uh, <laughs> Ellie Wiesel or Ellie Mistel or whatever the hell his name is. Um, brilliant mind, that one. But mm. I don't, we'll, we'll get to that because what we should get to first is the fact is when I was throwing back to Camille, um, yes. the great Damon Root came on. Our very uh, good friend, Damon Root. The, the, the Gigi Allen of uh, Supreme Court uh, watchers, <laughs> right? That's, yes. That's, that's what he calls himself. Our, yeah, our I mean, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sleep on the train tracks tonight. Hopefully I, hopefully I survive. <laughs> I writer, like writer um, author of, of numerous books uh, numerous. about the courts, uh, Overruled, uh, A Glorious Liberty, both of which um, I, I have owned and I have read. And I enjoyed thoroughly. Uh, and Damon, as always, it is, is great to have you back with us. Um, uh, I'm sure you've been paying a hell of a lot of attention. I'd love for us to try to talk about all three of the cases that are getting a, a bunch of attention this week. Um, the affirmative action case, the website, gay wedding website <laughs> case. It doesn't exist. Um, and yeah. what, was the, what was the third one? Oh, yeah. The uh, student, student loan situation. Wow. Um, which is uh, is interesting to have resolved this week. The, the trifecta, um, according to some, is representative of an extreme reactionary right-wing uh, takeover of the courts. It represents a profound change in America, according to many. Um, and as Moynihan mentioned earlier in our recording before you jumped on, there are lots of people calling for many things, including court packing again. Yes, yes. Um, We've heard a lot of this before, Damon. What is your take on the state of the court? Um, is is this a radical right wing takeover? Is it something else? I mean, these these particular decisions do seem to be getting decided across um, along um, partisan lines. Uh, but what are people um, what are people missing, and what are they get what are they getting right from your standpoint? Well, I mean, there these are six three decisions: Republican appointees six, Democratic appointees three. So it, it does break down that way. Um, but these, these, I mean, none of these were big surprises. I don't think to anyone who 
was who was looking at these cases or followed the oral arguments or just had a sense of where different kind of judicial perspectives um, were coming from. Uh, you know, I mean, Clarence Thomas, he's been gunning for affirmative action for for decades, and he's had this this long, this long, long, very influential campaign, intellectual campaign, and um, he's influenced generations of of conservative lawyers, judges, lower court judges, people who are now his colleagues on the Supreme Court were reading him, you know, 20 years ago in, uh, in, in affirmative action cases. So, uh, it's the, it's the, the come to fruition of, of some ideas, you know, on, on that issue. So, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a conservative court in, in sort of shorthand. These, these are, these are all, um, those six, three Republican appointees are, can be broadly defined as legal conservatives. Now, there's a lot of important distinctions within that, and that's the kind of those are the kind of storylines you're going to see uh, more and more. Is is that it's it's these fights among the the, the so-called conservative block um, that are going to really kind of make up the most important things going forward. But in something like affirmative action, there's you know it's like abortion affirmative action. There's certain issues where the, you know kind of partisan judicial. Um, appointment is a good predictor of where of where there's going to be a decision. And, you know, and so there's a lot of talk about how it's just, you know, the conservatives marching in lockstep, but, you know, it's the Democratic appointees are kind of marching in lockstep in these cases. Also, there's just three of them. And, the ba- you know, certainly the balance of power has changed. You know, there's a, the Trump got, got some appointments that changed that changed the court. Ginsburg dying, Ginsburg perhaps not retiring when she could have and could have ensured, like Breyer did, that she was replaced by someone who uh, thought more like her. Uh, you know, there's all these things that go into it. Um, and so it's a takeover by, by chance in a way, you know, and it's, you can't, some of these, some of these factors you can't plan for that people die and how presidential elections turn out and who controls the Senate at a given point and things like that. All those factors play into it. Anthony Weiner, most, yeah. most importantly. <laughs> Dave, Dave, let's, uh, there's three cases the here. Tenth, the 10th, the 10th justice. The, <laughs> I mean, I referred to him that when he was in, in the house. Yeah. I was like, he's the 10th justice. Um, there's three cases we want to talk about all of them because they're all incredibly important. Um, let's stick on affirmative action for a moment. And, you know, as you said, nothing surprised anyone here. We knew exactly what was going to happen. We've all heard Thomas uh, talk about this stuff over the years and, and his writing on it, which I, which I said earlier was, I thought was, was, was quite good. Um, a lot of conversation has turned to the dissents and we are now for the first time, particularly in something that is, that is uh, race related, uh, seeing uh, Katanji Brown Jackson, right. And obviously she recu- recused herself on the Harvard part of this, but the other one was what UNC that she did not, and she was speaking towards that. There was a lot of criticism of her, and I shared a lot of it when I was reading her dissent. What did you make of of her dissent uh, on the affirmative action stuff? Well, you know, it's interesting. So there, I think there is a, there's a, there's an argument there, a, a debate there about some of the original meaning of the 14th Amendment and the role that, that race could play. Yeah. So if you look at the time when the 14th Amendment is enacted and the 39th Congress that, that enacts it, that's a Congress that passes the Freedmen's Bureau Act and these kind of these 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 sweeping civil rights laws, their Civil Rights Act of 1866 and, and so on, um, that that take race into account to mm-hmm. an extent um, mm-hmm. to to remediate the 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 ills of, of slavery and and help the freed the freed people. So there is the you know, the, the Thomas view is this kind of very clear cut. It's a colorblind constitution. Um, and then 
KBJ was was getting into sort of that other argument. I would have liked more of that argument to be part of this case. I think that's really fascinating history. Um, and there were but a some, lot of this is based some, on on the Civil Rights Act of 1965 too, right? I mean, there's only when you look at all the writing on this from from uh, the concurrence and you know the. The Constitution is mentioned a bit, but there's a lot more, it seems to me, and again, I'm, correct me if I'm wrong, and I probably am wrong, I was skimming it. There's a lot on on um, a violation of the Civil Rights Act, right? Correct. Yeah, th- that's what I mean, is like, I would have, I would have, there, there's there's something there to grapple with about the 14th Amendment and and this issue, um, and and Thomas lays out a, a very clear argument for that, and I would have, li- that's what I'm saying, is I would have liked to see the other side yeah. do it, I think, yeah. do a better job of getting into that, because there was something there, and I was surprised there wasn't more... Because there was some good stuff in in the briefs, the print of the court briefs from from historians, including some self-professed originalists, this guy Evan Burnick, who co-wrote a book about the 14th Amendment with Randy Barnett, who's seen as this figure on the right. But Evan actually has this kind of different view on the 14th Amendment there. So there's some there's some kind of meat on the bone for for these originalists on the left and the right. And, and KBJ kind of presented herself as like open to originalism a bit in her confirmation hearing. So I was looking for a little more mm-hmm. her on that, I guess, is 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 what I if, is really what I would what I would say we, we, to, to that. We talked it about seemed, it, go ahead. Oh go ahead. I was gonna say we you know we talked about Clarence Thomas here, but it's it's uh, Justice Roberts who does the main opinion here. Can you tease out the kind of difference? My shorthand of it, which you will correct quickly, is that Justice Roberts really likes formulations along the lines of, in order to stop government discrimination, we should have uh, government stop discriminating. Um, he, like he had a version of that, and I forget the exact uh, mm-hmm. thing this time around. Uh, whereas Clarence Thomas goes to Camille land. He goes to, yes. what are we even talking about with this race shit? Um, can you talk about the difference there and also the difference of the kind of voting heft? Uh, you know, is does the opinion count more than the concurrence? How does that work out like now and in the future? Well, Thomas, I believe, fully joins the majority opinion, but okay. then writes a separate concurrence to, mm-hmm. to, to argue with the dissenters and then to also kind of lay out his own thing. And and the way these opinion assignments work is the whoever is in the majority, most the seniority on, on the winning side gets to write the opinion. So the chief always out, outranks everybody else. So he may have just been like, sorry, Clarence, you, know, you got the Second Amendment last year and I'm I'm, I'm taking I'm taking this one because this has been a longstanding um, priority for Roberts too, going way back. He has that, you know, the way to stop, you know, discriminating on the basis of race is to stop discriminating on the basis of race. He calls it a divvying us up by race as a sort of business. He's actually got a lot of these kind of quotes you can pull out on this issue. So it's something um, he represents that kind of uh, conservative legal view that's very critical of affirmative action on constitutional grounds and policy grounds all the way through. Um, Thomas brings a lot of interesting stuff to all of these race issues. You know, he's he's called an Uncle Tom and and, and then criticized in all these ways, but he's he's got a you know, there, there's no justice who's who's written more about race and talked more about race than him than since, you know, Thurgood Marshall. And Thomas is, you know, he's this guy who is steeped in Malcolm X, says mm-hmm. he's, you know, owned every speech of Malcolm X, has this actually kind of very dark view, um, you know, no pun intended, of American race relations. He's sort of like, if race could ever even be eliminated, which it probably can't be, a racism. Um, mm-hmm. And and he... And he's and he sort of sees it all as like, well, you know, some, you know, the the arguments that, you know, that were made for slavery were, you know, 
were were for the for the good of for the good of the the the, the black man. So these sort of I mean, he just he has this 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 point of view that's sort of like just don't trust white liberals when they come bearing gifts because they're our enemy and they have been and and that kind of comes out again and again and in his in his writings and his views on this. So he's he's bringing something very interesting. Um, legally and historically to this to this conversation i wonder and i don't think it's possible because i think that people that attack thomas uh for being you know an uncle tom an empty suit somebody who never speaks up during any deliberations etc although you read his concurrence from the bench right yes he did and it's really interesting too because the people that tend to look at this stuff and i think damon you're probably one of them i was surprised uh, a guy whose stuff I, i really don't like uh, Corey Robin, the uh, left-wing academic, wrote a book on Thomas, and you know he's going to attack Thomas, and he ends up saying, "Well, you know, he's a really interesting legal thinker too." And here's why: I mean, he goes through all the things he disagrees with, but you know, and again, I skimmed the book because I was just obsessed with the fact that Corey Robin, of all people, would say that there's actually some heft to what uh, Thomas is saying. And I, what I was reading, it was I thought his was really wonderfully written, wonderfully rendered, as opposed to. All the dissents that I read were just real clunkers. And do you, I don't think, is there any possibility that people will look back on Thomas as, you know, consequential, of course. We know he's consequential, but consequential because he's a consequential thinker and an interesting thinker on race. That's the thing that um, strikes me the more I read of directly from his pen. There's, there have been, he's going to... he's going to go down as this absolutely consequential figure. You know, like one of the things, you know, there's sort of these just a few ways you can, as a justice, you can make your mark on the Supreme Court. And there's sort of the Anthony Kennedy model, which is like the right place at the right time. You know, it's a divided court and he's this sort of moderate Republican, moderate conservative, whatever you want to call him, Mm -hmm. who, so he's right there to be vote number five for gay rights, gay marriage. But he's not some great mighty thinker Mm -hmm. um, who 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 crafted this edifice of law whereas thomas i mean he has been out there in you know the wilderness for de- you know for decades writing in dissents and concurrences often alone and um the law has sort of come to him you know he just he just had a birthday a couple of days ago i mean this guy writes this landmark second amendment opinion a year ago he 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 gets to see affirmative action destroyed this year i mean he's he's seeing you know his long-term legal goals um really come into play and his influence, I mean, there the all these young generations of lawyers, judges, legal thinkers who really, really respect him. I mean, he is, for all the hatred he gets from some critics, he is just beloved and respected, including by people who who are on the right and disagree with him on a bunch of issues like him and Gorsuch butt, butt heads on various things. But clearly, Justice Gorsuch, you know, holds him in very high regard and was one of these people who's influenced by him um, coming up. But... Um, one thing that's interesting about this sort of re- more thoughtful response to Thomas is there was, there was you know, I, I hate to even bring up Jeffrey Tubin at all, especially when you're on a, you know, a video call like we are here. Um, but, you know, Tubin a few years ago, um, he, he wrote this, you know, this idiotic piece, I think it's for the New Yorker, where he was like, well, you know, Thomas is asleep. He's literally asleep at the bench. He's not paying attention, you know. Mm. And, and like a bunch of people, I was one of them, kind of pointed out like, you know, I, we've been to the Supreme Court too, Jeffrey. And like he's awake and he's sitting there and he's talking to Breyer, who's right next to him. They're talking to each other the whole time. Turns out that Thomas is feeding questions to Breyer, which is what Breyer tells us that, you know, some of these questions are from Clarence. You know, they're pouring over law books together. You know, he's very sort of active, but he doesn't. He wasn't asking questions. 
Um, and there was this law professor, I can't think of her name, who wrote this piece about kind of about that, but like in a law review. And it was sort of like, that reminded me of something. What did people say about Thurgood Marshall? That he was asleep at the bench. Is you that know, right? It was like, she recognized that huh. there was this kind of, you know, these sort of white critics were kind of making the same, you know, and that was kind of her argument is sort of like, whoa, I started to see this is like a progressive, you know, liberal um, racial justice kind of oriented law professor who was kind of like, oh, this is, I kind of started to see Clarence Thomas a little differently when I started to see these criticisms of him in this kind of racial light, which, of course, what Thomas has said about his critics are are being sort of racist against him. Um, so th there's some space there, I think, for some more thoughtful appraisals of him. Um, and because the influence is just is undeniable. And like yeah, I said, the yeah. influence is something that has been built up. Yeah. You know, he is just he's just laid down this sort of case law. And now and went from the uh, solo dissent to majority opinion or his views are being reflected in the majority, like in affirmative action sure. and, and, and abortion and other issues where he just gets to write a kind of a fiery concurrence and someone else writes a majority opinion. But it's like he's kind of the guiding the guiding figure. Yeah. Can we talk in a little bit of detail about uh, Katanji Brown Jackson's uh, uh, dissenting opinion and, and what we found there? I mean, you mentioned that there were a few things that you would have expected to see a little bit more of. Um, but when we were exchanging texts earlier, um, I was reading <laughs> the opinion in The Guardian and Moynihan mentions, you know, this thing reads kind of like an opinion editorial. I mean, it's it's light on. I was legal amazed theory, by the italics. And it very, yeah, <laughs> and it's very heavy on these political arguments, these kind of ideological arguments. One might say, you know, what's being advocated for here is is a rather kind of activist bent on the part of the court and not so much a particular legal perspective. Um, there are all of these assertions about um, the importance of address addressing racial disparities and mm -hmm. essentially an, a, a clear assumption on her part um, maybe I should use the word presumption there, um, that these affirmative action programs and various other programs geared towards giving priority to black black people in particular um, are, one, like definitely necessary and efficacious, um, and clearly within the interest of the United States broadly, and absolutely essential for us to be pursuing because these policies will definitely work. And the condemnation that she's heaping on the folks in the majority is these people are going to set us back. They're going to make it impossible for us to get rid of these racial disparities. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, it's, it just struck me as pretty odd for her to be making assertions like that, which I mean, she doesn't have to substantiate in this document. Will these programs actually address um, mm -hmm. racial disparities? Unclear. <laughs> um, and once the racial disparities are addressed, is that the end of racism, as she describes in the document, it seems profoundly unlikely to me. Camille, can I read, um, Damon, this thing that I sent you? Uh, this is yeah. uh, about the third paragraph in, and this is one with this hilarious italics in it. Students for Fair Admissions, that's the litigant that's uh, suing Harvard, uh, has maintained both subtly and overtly, subtly, I think it's just overtly, that it is italics unfair for a college admissions process to consider race as one of the factors in a holistic review of its applicants. This contention blinks, very odd phrase here, this contention blinks both history and reality in ways too numerous to count. Oh. 
No, but I mean, you have a lot of pages. You can, well, you could, and you could enumerate a few. Enumerate a few. <laughs> uh, but I thought this was really interesting, Damon, because to, to Camille's point, and I thought it was important to read this, because I thought it was, it's kind of somebody that sounds like they're in the academic world who doesn't live in the world with the rest of us. We heard quite a bit after the, um, um, uh, overturning of Roe, that this is an anti-democratic thing because most uh, Americans agree with abortion. This would therefore be an anti-democratic, uh, a pro-democratic mm-hmm. thing because most people oppose affirmative action. But it struck me that this was somebody who lived in a different universe that is starting off her dissent by saying that it's unfair, italicized, for a college admissions process to consider race as one factor in a holistic review of its applicants. Like, she can't believe that anyone would think that. She's and a majority her, of them... Shaking her damn head. Sure, shaking her damn head. It's like a majority yeah. of Americans do believe that it is unfair. So adding that... Sorry, Camille, just to add that to the question is that... To yeah. Camille's point, there's not a lot of... There's not a lot of, like, sinew or meat on those bones at all, right? Yeah, yeah. And I'm not even sure I asked the question. Um, <laughs> More than a reaction to something that that seemed a, a very, um, very thin. Maybe one question yeah. would be like: it seemed to be a lot of bitching back and forth between yeah, the yeah, majority sure. and the minority about the dissents, uh, like in the majority, like uh, 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 Roberts uh, and others, and, and some in, in the other cases as well. It's like you know, this dissents aren't very good. <laughs> um, it was that more than usual, or are we just uh, paying uh, more attention to this one? Mm. Uh, these kind of cases bring bring out some bring out some some of the sharp elbows. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I mean, the late Justice Scalia was pretty famous for throwing some throwing. His were so beautifully written, though. But he, <laughs> but he would, you know, yeah. But, I mean, well, that's you know, the some 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 justices are better writer than others. Yeah, I think you know what the, the one of the legal questions in this case was was um, can the can these racial um use of race at admissions can it survive a legal standard called strict scrutiny mm-hmm. this is this is what the court applies in 14th amendment cases dealing with equal protection clause also with the due process clause and it's it's the most aggressive um hard to clear judicial hurdle if you will and so the and it's two part first yeah the the government has to show that it's its use of race serves a compelling state interest. And then after that, it has to show that it's, if it satisfies that, then it has to show that the measure is narrowly tailored. Um, and so this case ultimately turned really on the narrowly tailored part of it, that what the schools were doing, just, you know, there was no way for judges to test or to look at. Um, that, that's what the majority said, that it's just sort of not narrowly tailored. But the question kind of lurking in the background, and I think lurking in the background, I shouldn't say in the background, but one of the things I think that Justice um, Jackson is getting at is the first part, the compelling state interest. Uh, Proponents of affirmative action have been critical, actually, of the way the Supreme Court has defended affirmative action, this diversity in higher education as a compelling state interest. I, I think a lot of proponents would say, either coming from the academic side or from law schools or whatever, would say that, no, this is this is um this is not about diversity in edu- higher education or whatever. It's it this this needs to be a redress of past illnesses, of past, right. past wrongs. This is a way of addressing racism. And so I've always been actually kind of disappointed and or I should say frustrated. That's the word I mean. Frustrated with the Supreme Court and how this this legal um, apparatus uh, kind of came to be in the Bakke decision and, and others that upheld that, where diversity was the compelling state interest. So I, I think that and that's, that's the probably- And that's the Alan Bakke decision in 78, right? And that was yeah, a, yeah. A, a, a medical school at Berkeley? Was that at UC Berkeley? 
in I think it was Berkeley, and he sued. And what was the what was the result of? Because that kind of set us on the path that we're on today. That and and it was kind of a it was kind of a, the same thing in two thousand three. It was a bit of a you know a little of this, little of that result. Yes. right? it's a little of this and a little of that, and and that's and so there's even even the even the people who would like. Um, you know, affirmative action policies to prevail in these cases on those precedents, on those yeah. standards, don't really like those precedents, would like them to say different things. Yeah. So I do think that when you get someone like Justice Jackson in dissent, she starts to get into probably, um, you know, I'm not trying to read her mind too much, but it's probably getting into like, well, you know, these sort of racial ills, that's really what this should be about and sort of mm-hmm. getting into sort of that stuff. So it, it's, it's um, you know, you've, at that point, you've lost anyways, so you might as well but here's how it kind of should be done. And maybe it wasn't the most eloquent version of that. But I think that explains maybe part of what, what we're talking about here, which is what feels like a, a I don't want to say disconnect, but um, it doesn't, it doesn't, not everything felt responsive to the, some of the, the questions that the core, that the majority was, was, well, was dealing with. I mean, in, in the, in the nature of the complaint as well. I mean, the, the reason this complaint is brought because is because particular people are saying we are being discriminated against because of our race. And in her, in her um, dissenting opinion, like she just kind of waves her hand at this concern and suggests that this isn't a problem at the mm-hmm. North Carolina policy. And she essentially she wasn't involved with the Harvard case at all, which I suppose is a bit convenient for her, because in that case, it seems that it was a little more explicit. Uh, the fact that race was a deciding factor for a lot of kids getting into the school. And it's worth taking a look at exactly how that affirmative action program worked, um, at least uh, in, in, in practice. Um, so it, that, that part of it didn't really sit well with me, but I think the other part of it is there are all of these blanket statements that we must address racial disparities. At some point we will get rid of all of them and then racism will be over, except she's not actually interested in getting rid of all of them. The only racial disparities that she points to, and she points to a number of them in all kinds of contexts that don't seem to necessarily be related to one another. She just insists they are, um, but she's only interested in the disparities between blacks and everyone else or blacks and black and brown people and everyone else. You know, the fact that these disparities exist in other contexts that Asians, quote unquote, outperform their white counterparts. Um, and when we look at like, say, uh, uh, median income, for example, for Asians and whites, the gap between Asians and whites is bigger than the gap <laughs> between whites and blacks. She's not interested in addressing that. That is not a, a result of racism, apparently, um, which we know because she informs us. Um, there's just something that's obviously very arbitrary about this and highly selective and seems to whatever your interest in trying to ameliorate these past wrongs, like it is obvious that this isn't a matter of equal protection. This is a matter of special concern for particular people, which necessarily is happening at the expense of other people. And she won't acknowledge that. And she won't talk about what that actually means, why that's okay, why that's justifiable constitutionally. And I I just see very little conversation about the actual legal merits of the position of people who want to defend the status quo um, on affirmative action. For the most part, I see a great deal of moaning um, and also a lot of uh, rather frustrating um, soft bigotry of low expectations, to use a a phrase coined by W uh, some years back. 
um, where they continue to insist that certain kinds of people can't succeed, but for the possibility of them having racial preferences and admissions. Again, and again, there's no question. Again, in question. There. <laughs> just kind of yeah. doing stuff. <laughs> I, I will say one thing, and um, uh, I don't know if you read the first footnote in um, Justice Roberts. Um, yeah, it was it was the first one. Yeah, where he, she, I think it was the one time it seemed to me that she got into numbers and was talking about UNC, which she has to talk about because she recused herself from Harvard. And she says, you know, well, like the numbers here shows that everything, this, this is a total fantasy. And he rips her to absolute shreds. I'm not going to go into any detail on this, but I would recommend people uh, look for the Roberts opinion and look at the first footnote, which starts Justice Jackson attempts to minimize the role that race plays in UNC's admission process mm-hmm. by citing these numbers. And he's like, this is totally ridiculous. And here's why. And it's fairly convincing. I mean, it's, it's actually very convincing. And it just seems to me... And I don't know if you get this sense too, Damon, but that a lot of this stuff is, um, I don't know, for lack of a better phrase, I hate to sound kind of flippant about it, but the, the dissent seemed very emotional in the sense that like, mm-hmm. this is about racism, this is about the past, we have to correct these injustices and what are you going to do about it? The thing that people don't, I, I think, address, and I don't know how one does address this. Number one, this is a different case than it was when Sandra Day O'Connor said, 25 years from now is in 2003, I think. I said 25 years from now, we probably won't need any of this stuff. Well, that was a bit <laughs> optimistic, wasn't it? And, um, you know, the Backey case is in 78. So everything's changed by this because now we're talking about Asians quite a bit. The Harvard case is almost exclusively about Asians, right? I mean, everybody else gets, you know, wrapped up in that when they break down the numbers of who gets in and who doesn't. Look at those numbers. They're absolutely stunning. They're absolutely stunning. And, um, but that sort of thing is, is interesting because when we talk about these, these, uh, cases from as far back as 78 or as far back as Lyndon Johnson's famous speech about, you know, starting, not everyone can start the race at the same place and expect to finish in an equal way. And that is, what was that, Damon? 67 or 66? Maybe, was it 65? Maybe even. Do you remember the year of it? Definitely in the mid-60s. It's mid-60s. It's around there. So it's a long time. And so we have had programs um, for a very long time. And what we're talking about now is getting people into university and helping them succeed because of historic racism, because of worse schools, et cetera. The thing that we're missing of this is we're starting up here. We're starting at the college level. And we're still having the same fucking problems in 2023 that getting qualified students of different backgrounds is become difficult and therefore we need programs like this. I'm not saying any, any, Judge Jackson says the same thing. Everybody on MSNBC says the same thing. We need this. We need this. We need this. Does anyone stop to say, well, what is actually the root problem here? We're not preventing the cancer. We're treating the cancer. We're not preventing the cancer. It's not like there's a plant that's spewing up black smoke and giving everyone cancer. Let's shut down that plant maybe. We say, no, no, let them all get cancer, and then we'll kind of treat it when they're 18. Because no one appears to be taking on the most important thing, which is, why are we still at this point? Because all of these programs over time don't appear to have done that much. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know the numbers and don't have them in front of me. But if we're arguing this strenuously, and people who are um, su- supportive of reduction are arguing this strenuously, obviously that is required today, right? That is needed today. Why are we in that place right now? And I know this is not the court's business as such, but why is no one stopping and saying, okay, all right, we'll have this argument. 
but why are we having this this situation where we need that ten fingers up uh, as as newly graduated seniors and also at at almost exclusively elite institutions? I mean, Jane Coaston had a decent point uh, earlier today or yesterday on Twitter, just that the vast majority of colleges accept everyone. <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah, we're like, yeah. talking about the management of elite production at universities. Um, and of course, there's going to be vicious fights over that as there are in, in New York City and in, in K through 12 public schools. Yeah, absolutely. Sure. Uh, vicious fights, uh, which by the way, kids know about in public schools. Um, like, literally, I saw someone tweeting about this. They, you know, kids say, oh, if you're trying to get into one of the elite schools, that you're probably not going to do so because you're white. This is what happens. Mm -hmm. 15 year olds are saying this, no, no joke. You've 14 year olds are saying this. this is part of the culture. We understand this. I just think that's a poisonous part of the culture. Uh, Damon, I don't know if, you, if you've uh, detected a question in any of that uh, that you want to address, <laughs> but if not, I have- Hop in, hop in. But, but if not, I have an actual question. Fire away. All right. Um, so what is the effect, right? We, we, we banned um, the Supreme Court level affirmative action in K through 12 schools. Uh, I think in 2007 or eight or sometime around there. Um, now it's it's seems to be banned at higher education. What does this mean? Does this mean that the set asides in your local city council for 15 percent of all uh, city contracts have to be to minority or women owned businesses that we can't do that anymore? What does this mean for affirmative action in America in places that are not fucking Harvard? Well, it means more, more, more cases, more lawsuits. Um, they're all vulnerable smarts. to lawsuits from now on. Every one of those things that has to do. More, they should, I would say things are more vulnerable than mm -hmm. they were. I mean, it, it does depend, you know, the, the reason that this, these were 14th amendment cases, although the, um, Harvard one was actually a civil rights act case sort of originally. Um, but they both were 14th amendment cases is cause, cause the one's a state school. And then the other, the argument was because it receives, even though it's a private Harvard's a private school receives government, government mm -hmm. funding, therefore the 14th amendment applies. So when you're talking about state action in any in any component, you have you have the Fourteenth Amendment. You have this aggressive use of the of the strict scrutiny test for racial preferences in education. So some of the logic of that can start to be applied in these other instances. You know, it's like I said, it's a, a it's a two pronged test, and so it could be that well, the use of racial racial preferences in awarding contracts is it serves this compelling interest and then it's narrow tailored in this way. And so maybe that could pass the test in a future case, but that'll be the inquiry will, will, will look like that. And, um, all of these tests that the, these court, that the courts make up, um, cause they're, they're all just, they're all invented, you know, you're not going to find strict scrutiny or rational basis or intermediate scrutiny or any of the stuff in the constitution. These are, these are judicial <laughs> inventions. So they're as strict or as uh, loose as as the as the presiding judge wants to make them and clarence thomas made this point in the affirmative action case in his concurrence which is kind of like this is strict scrutiny and and we and we mean it um sorry i just had a very loud door open <laughs> that's all right so yeah i mean to to return briefly to the to the uh point that moynihan made a moment ago uh and then maybe pivot to to the um somewhat related case, which is dealing with funding of uh, college education. Um, it, it does seem like the dissenting opinion that has received the most attention here, she does lay out a root cause. It's 
white supremacy. It's just kind of the foundation of the country. It's the notion that at some point there has been racial discrimination. It persisted for some period of time as, as, and slavery, and that those things are to blame for all of the disparities that we see in the world. And we just need to do, we need to try harder. Um, and by talking about the origin of this and acknowledging that all of this is a result of white supremacy, we can somehow uh, mystically uh, overcome this problem in that particular way. Um, and, and what I see when I read it is just this profound, almost determined incuriosity. Like there's no recognition of the fact that this is fundamentally enormously complicated, that the things that actually are responsible for contributing to the disparities that exist today in education versus healthcare, in particular contexts, are likely going to be radically different factors. And the actual things that are likely to bring about better outcomes might have absolutely nothing to do with anything government can do. And one of the, the clearest examples of the disconnect between the stated purposes of policies like affirmative action and the actual way that they work in reality is to pay attention to who is actually taking advantage of these programs. And at Harvard in particular, like there have been... Um, studies and papers written that uh, look at the fact that something like maybe half or two thirds of the quote unquote black students who actually end up going to a place like Harvard are people like me. Like it's first generation quote unquote black people who come from the Caribbean or who come from um, Africa. <coughs> and it's not native born blacks who have been through particular, who have a particular pedigree in history, who have been kind of systematically disadvantaged by white supremacy. Like your policy isn't actually working in the way that you imagine it is, but you continue to per perpetuate it and continue to insist that all of these people are capital B black they're all the same and they can't really be differentiated between uh, from one another um, in much the same way Asian students can't. And as a result, we have too many of those Asians. We don't have enough of those blacks. Just get me some of them. Like anyone who believes that this is actually going to solve these problems in the long run and lead us to a utopia free of racism is, is simply not being serious. And I think that the, the broader concern um, about the 14th Amendment, about this principle of equal protection under the law, like a law that is not a respecter of persons, which I think is fundamentally different than um, kind of colorblindness as a, as a legal goal um, or as a, a fundamental principle, um, is, is actually really important. And it does seem like it, it can be meaningfully jeopardized by having there be this kind of this current um, of, of uh, a political commitment or philosophical commitment to equity um, and racial parity in terms of outcomes, uh, as opposed to a, a real commitment to equal protection. So I, I think that represents a really profound and a philosophical discussion and debate that ought to be happening. But I don't see much of that. I mean, most of the coverage that I've seen, um, Damon, about all of these cases, like seems to be like red team versus blue team. Um, it's these like really um, kind of thoughtless, oftentimes completely devoid of any kind of real jurisprudential analysis, like summaries of the case. Like this case has been decided. It is a victory for conservatives and <laughs> it is a profound loss for black Americans. And it's just preposterous. Are there not people who kind of sort of look like me who find the decision that was made in this particular case like 
more than satisfactory that this is a good thing? Are there not plenty of people who don't consider themselves conservatives um, who feel as though they've been disadvantaged by these policies who aren't celebrating today? There's plenty of that. And I just, I wish there was a little bit more thoughtfulness and curiosity amongst the journalistic class who are supposed to be covering these stories and who for the most part seem completely disinterested in the actual legal nuances of things, which perhaps it's just where we are. I don't know if that's something that you see changing, Damon, in the way that these stories are getting covered, or if it's if it's kind of always been this way. I mean, I think it's getting dumber for sure. Um, the, the you know, people have asked me, was well, isn't you know late June? Isn't that like a cool time of year for you? Because there's all these big Supreme Court cases are coming out. I'm like, oh, I hate it. I mean, it's just so many idiots. You know, it's just like, why am I wasting my time reading these opinions and thinking about them? Because every moron, you know, on the internet is is beat you to the punch now. It, um, the, yeah, the, the, the mainstream press, I mean, you know, like used to, it used to be bad enough when it was like, you know, like the slate kind of opinions, but like that stuff has migrated you mm-hmm. know, all over the place, that kind <laughs> yeah. of level of stupidity. <laughs> so yeah, I think you're, I think you're right that it's, that it's gotten, um, the kind of horse race kind of aspect, aspect of it and the real, you know, you see all the, like the Trump judge, Trump judge this and that. And like, yeah. you know, I've spent a lot of time. You know, being critical of Donald Trump, and I've been critical of a lot of his appointees, but like, you know, shorthand like that tells you something sometimes, and it like really makes you dumber other times because you totally miss all the things that are really going on. And that's just sort of what happens again and again. So for sure, in a in affirmative action case and an abortion case, there are some issues where, as I said before, the, you know, conservative, liberal, like those kind of indicators will tell you something, but there's, the court does a lot of other things when that, that's not that's not really going to, that's not going to get you very far. And yet we have a lot of punditry, a lot of quote unquote journalism um, that, that uh, doesn't, doesn't really grapple with that. I mean, we, what we see in the punditry is, is to avoid the more difficult aspects of this by making it all a lot less Asian, um, which (laughs) is, you know, I'm seeing a lot of conversations about black and white and, you know, racism and systemic racism. And I'm like, does anyone remember the Chinese Exclusion Act? Kind of a big deal. Kind of a big deal. Truth in advertising. And though. by the way, yeah, I, I give credit for that. <laughs> we just like, it's like Korean fine. I, we never even heard of them, but if yeah. they come, fine. But, you know, in, in this, this uh, conversation about, you know, Asian hate that has overwhelmed everybody in the past five years since, or since COVID, et cetera. And, you know, the hard case is a case about Asians. And a lot of the affirmative action things are about Asians. And especially when you think of the, you know, moms and dads in Queens who work 13 hours a day at the bodega and send uh, their kids to Stuyvesant. They've been and the then, biggest hard asses uh, against the kind of woke bureaucracy of K through 12 schools one, in New York. Oh 100%. My oh my God. And, and one has to rewrite that as adjacent, which is my, my, my favorite thing is a white <laughs> adjacent. It's like, what the hell does that even mean? But that, that kind of stuff, it, it's a difficult thing to grapple with somebody who's been here since 1990, whose family's been here since 1990 and are losing out on a place because if you read Ketanji uh, Brown Jackson's descent of all of these systems in place that have given that person the advantage, it's like, no, but they came from Korea in like 1991. Like what, what, uh, well, it's baked into the system. We want to keep some sort of systemic racism, which is, 
this affirmative, affirmative action stuff that we were, were, were debating about, but there's other systemic racism which actually advantages that poor kid from Queens. It does not compute for almost anyone who is, you know, looking at this stuff with an open mind. Somebody who's not on, as Camille says, one team or another, you know, in like, that's just the thing that I find very frustrating about it is that to, we are so happy to make this all about black, white. And I don't remember who the comedian was who said that, you know, Americans are the type of people to go on vacation to China and say, God, look at all the minorities. <laughs> it's a billion minorities. Here. This is insane. That we have a very weird uh, way of thinking of it. But on the other couple of cases, um, student loan debt, I think, was, was, was probably a little more straightforward considering that Joe Biden and Nancy Pelosi actually um, written about by, I don't know who wrote that decision. Who wrote the decision um, uh, on, for, for the um, student loan forgiveness case? Damon, do you remember? Oh, that's uh, that's Roberts. That's Roberts. Um, so we have that one, which is he actually quotes Nancy Pelosi in it. It was like <laughs> the president does not have the power. Yeah, bit of a troll yeah, move. Yeah. It's a troll move, but like this is a Congress's, lot of tweeting from the but, bench. Going yeah, on but this guys. is but but this is a perfect example of what we were talking about before. Abby Abby Phillip, who is the anchor of Inside Politics on CNN, she's a senior political correspondent there. So one would senior. presume she knows a little bit of something about civics and how government works, and you know what it means when the Supreme Court decides a case. This is how she summarized the case on Twitter. Breaking, the Supreme Court blocked the Biden administration's student loan forgiveness plan on Friday, invalidating a program aimed at delivering up to $20,000 of relief <laughs> to millions of borrowers struggling with outstanding debt in the aftermath of COVID. There's no thumb on the scale. That's it. That's it, yeah. yeah. There is no yeah. <laughs> jurisprudential analysis there yeah. whatsoever. It's yeah. just apparently the Supreme Court is mean. Because they don't want to help people, <laughs> but Damon, who on this one, can't this, afford their bills. This could and happen. Just want twenty thousand dollars. <laughs> yeah, or Chris Hayes said, "You've all become ten thousand dollars poorer." It's like, what actually, is what is going? I paid not off all. my loans. Yeah, um, not all. <laughs> this is this is you know middle middle class, upper class people who send their kids to school, um, who make somewhere beneath two hundred fifty thousand dollars a year. Like that's who you're talking to. There's a universe of Americans who are genuinely hard up who don't yes. benefit from this program um, and they're not $10,000 poorer or no. richer because of this decision. They just it, don't have to pay for that program. And Damon, to be clear, this could still happen, right? It just can't be done by executive fiat. Correct. Well, yeah, I mean, Congress could, th that sort of was the question at the, the heart of the case was, is this something that Congress actually authorized right. under this law, the yes. Heroes Act? That, Which is 2001 um, that, or two, right? Yeah, yes. this is this, Nothing yeah, it's 2003, I think. It. It's, a, yeah. it's a post 9-11 yeah. law. But, it, but, you know, the thing is, is when I first heard that justification for this, I, you know, I, I, I wouldn't have been surprised if this case had come out differently. Because one really? of the things that you, you see again and again is that um, in the realm of executive or presidential power, if presidential power can be tied to national uh, security, so com national security, yeah. commander mm -hmm. in chief, um, then th the Supreme Court tends to be like, okay, you know, yeah. give which you is what Trump did of, on a lot of the, the tariffs. Yeah, stuff. Mm -hmm. give you a little bit of leeway on that. Yeah. And so the Heroes <laughs> Act, I don't have it in front of me, but it has this, it's, it has some very sweeping language in it, which is sort of yeah. any, you know, national emergency. It wasn't just 9 11. I mean, that, the purpose of that law was yeah. people impacted by 9 11 get a pause on their student loans or whatever. But it had this very broad language. And so it's not inconceivable that, that the Supreme Court, because we've seen those kind of decisions in the past, but for various reasons, um, the court 
you know, didn't buy it this time and said, look, Congress clearly did not authorize this. And the court has this this test, major questions doctrine and these things that it brings to these cases that uh, or it recently has that says, yeah, if, if you're going to if you're essentially going to be legislating, mm-hmm. you know, you're not the legislative branch or the executive branch. We have a separation of power. So if you're essentially going to be legislating, we need to see a pretty clear uh, uh, delegation of that authority from Congress. The statutes really got to clearly say it. We're not going to we're not going to give you so much slack. And um, so this was a pretty, pretty firm decision along along those lines that, that Congress didn't authorize this. We're not going to give you the benefit of doubt. We're not going to give you that kind of leeway. Um, and, you know, and that's it. And and so if and so if Congress had passed something like this, that would would be be fine under this analysis, or maybe if Biden, because I think Biden, I didn't get a chance to see it, but I guess he gave a press conference today where he said mm-hmm. something like, "Well, there's another statute we can, yeah, yeah, you know, we can. We're use already working this. on it, yeah, mm-hmm. and you know, maybe maybe that'll that's the then maybe that's the silver bullet. I don't sentence. know. Yeah, and then uh, <laughs> yeah. God save God save the king. God save the um, king, and then he went to Nicole Wallace's house and walked out. Yeah, so. <laughs> So um, this is a case yeah. about about these that, that that these that there's a branch that passes the laws and then there's a branch that forces the laws and when one branch is doing the other branch's job the Supreme Court has said we're going to we're going to look at that we're going to look more closely at that and that's something that you've seen you know the the quote unquote the liberal justices have felt that way you know one of the, one of the things that in this case where I I was pretty sure that that Biden was doomed was in the oral arguments the Chief Justice, you know, he's 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 going back and forth with um, the Solicitor General, or uh, uh, yeah, I guess it was the SG or or some you know government lawyer, and and said, well, you know, this kind of reminds me of a case we had a couple years ago under a dif- different administration, the Trump administration, mm. about the uh, deferred arrivals, the DACA, the DACA program, yeah. and he said, and you know, we said Congress didn't authorize that, and we smacked that down, mm-hmm. and it's like, okay, that's kind of game over at that point when. When Roberts is like, this reminds me of what we did to Trump. And, you know, Roberts had some different company in that case than he had in in this case. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, so you have a conservative court, yes, and maybe politics are, are, are a deciding factor in some of their decisions. But then you have these liberal justices and our politics factors in some of their decisions, too, and not just law. It, yeah. it, it seems it, it certainly it seems raises, that way. Raises yeah. some questions. But the, po- the politics you see in the Katanji Brown Jackson descent, which is just dripping with politics. I, I look at this, I just did a, a, a search in this Biden v. Nebraska case. And, um, you know, there's no, you can't, there's so much politics that you could put into this, right? That have nothing to do with the jurisprudence. And that's what I saw a lot of in, in the, the Jackson dissent, Mm -hmm. because I mean, one of the things that you could say, and this sounds like a crazy thing to say, but like, it's a political point. You could say that, you know, just forgiving all this debt for as long as we have has been inflationary. It's putting a lot of more money in people's hands. Economists are making the argument that's inflationary, right? It's a bad thing to have inflation. It's nothing to do with the case, but it seems that you can only do that when it comes to race. When it comes to race, you can make these elaborate kind of, I said to Camille today and both of you today, I said, half of this sounds like a root editorial and mm-hmm. not like something that is leaning on the the jurisprudence of the past. I, I was so kind of depressed by it. But you see this one in particular, there's a million things you could say about the fairness of just writing off people's debt and others mm-hmm. who, which is not the the backbone of this 
of this argument. I don't even know if it's mentioned at all. Maybe it is, but it just... It what is mentioned like over and over again in the politics, and I presume some of the dissents are... Well, I, I won't presume, uh, but certainly the, uh, the journalistic depictions of it are the PPP uh, loans. Um, mm -hmm. Which is a totally different thing. Biden said it tonight. Biden yeah. said it tonight. Like, uh, look at these guys, Matt Gates or whoever else. Uh, they're recipients of PPP <laughs> loans that became grants once, once it changed over. Um, and that was a congressional authorization. And the case before the Supreme Court, Damon will correct me where I'm wrong, was about whether the executive branch could do a thing as opposed to Congress doing a thing. Um, mm -hmm. it, it is such like a crazy non sequitur from the beginning um, and yet we feel like we're ready to go and just jump. It was built in from the beginning that they would be forgiven at a certain point, too. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. Um, that, so that's, that's that was part of the architecture yeah. of that particular congressionally passed law. Um, I have a certain amount of, um, not depression, but sort of like fatalism, uh, Damon, about the, uh, the, the enthusiasm for which politicians from both parties are proposing laws that they know are unconstitutional. And this was uh, this came up a lot. When Biden first proposed this, it's like, hey, you've said that you didn't have that power. And Nancy Pelosi certainly said that you didn't have that power. Ron DeSantis mm -hmm. seemingly uh, every week does something that uh, traduces what we would imagine would be the power uh, that someone should have in, in government, kind of knowing that it's going to get challenged. He's going to lose. Um uh, Gavin Newsom, my God, he wakes up in the morning and just like uh, looks at himself in the mirror for about 75 hours and then like proposes something that he knows will be shut down by the Supreme Court. Uh, is it me or do I, is it, are people seemingly more promiscuous about this open, like I'm going to propose this at a politically advantageous time for me. In this case, this particular law is right before the midterms. Young people going to vote for me, going to give them free money. Um, and yeah. then like, bitch about it, you know, that the, the Supreme Court is illegitimate because ProPublica told me so uh, uh, kind of thing <laughs> a, a, afterwards. Uh, do, you, do you feel like people are being more loosey-goosey about kind of introducing blatantly unconstitutional things, or is it just me being cranky and old? Well, I think that's that's been going on for some time. But also, I would say me that- Me being you know, cranky think, and old? Yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think, you know, someone like DeSantis, I mean, I think he has absolutely insane people advising him who believe this stuff they're doing is lawful. They're wrong about that, I think. But I mean, I so I mean, I think there's some true believers who, who come up with really bad and, and, and unlawful stuff, too. Um, which stuff so, in particular on the, on the DeSantis front? <laughs> I was getting how ready much, to how ask much time, how much, how much time do we have? What, what do you think right. is the most, just podcast. Yeah. what is the most egregious one that you think? Yeah. Cause, cause some, some of those crazy people listen to the podcast <laughs> yeah. and after, <laughs> after we finish, I was asking, I was as just soon as you're done, yeah, someone yeah. is going to message me and say, Hey, yeah. you have these psycho liberal woke monsters <laughs> on your podcast and they just tell lies about yeah. Ron DeSantis. Yeah. Yeah. So, wh where, where are you seeing, um, kind of the most egregious overreach there? Well, I look, I, you know, policing the the um, intellectual, violating the First Amendment um, at, at public universities, colleges, you know, government, um, in, you know, state state institutions, and private employers to, as well, yeah, yeah, and private employers as well to run out people with um, views you disagree with. That's I think that's fairly egregious, and mm -hmm. it's pretty clear that that's what's happening, and that and that. Um, and that they, they that that people who support who who support him and support that think that's just a wonderful thing, and that's exactly how the power of the state should be used to punish punish our enemies and reward our friends and all that you know, um, all that uh, 
garbage. So that I, I could go, I could, I can give you more, but I mean, that to me seems like <laughs> a fairly egregious. That's a, that's you know, a good, uh, uh, that's a good start. Can we t- talk briefly, um, before we let you, let you go, Damon, about the, um, the gay wedding cake, uh, website case. <laughs> <laughs> that when people are making a gay, a gay cake that has a website inside of it. <laughs> there's, there's a, a website fo- inside yeah, of the cake. Yeah, there's a phone inside yeah. the cake and yeah. you get it out and there's a gay app yeah. or something. <laughs> and wait, so I just want to start with this. I saw this today that, and, and you know, we mentioned this. This isn't something that happened, right? I mean, this is um, a kind of thought experiment, right? No one came to her. Am I wrong about this? That nobody came to her with a, with a website? You know, I mean, I, I have, like many of us, we, we learned a lot of things about this case. Yeah, in, yeah, uh, yeah. Recent, yeah. recent hours and days. <laughs> yes. It's not a case that I was covering directly, and so I, I was familiar with the big, the big issues, but this whole idea that, you know, this, the, um, the couple maybe didn't exist and, and yeah. all of that. You know, there's, there's a history of, um, of, of civil rights groups and various groups creating what's called a test case, where essentially both parties agree mm-hmm. the NAACP did this. Where it's sort of like you know, where I'm gonna I'm gonna sue you, um, but like we're kind of both we're essentially both in on it. You know, I'm gonna buy I'm gonna buy property from you, and the law says a black person can't sell it to a white person, vice versa. But we're gonna do that anyways. That's Buchanan versus Warley uh, in 1917. Um, but there were actually were you know parties there. Those were actually were people, mm-hmm. and there was property. So it seems like maybe this case is a whole kind of other level. But um, theoretically. You know, the issue was, um, can this uh, website designer be, be compelled to, to, um, create expressive content or speak, um, something that they, that they, that they don't want to speak and, and, um, and, and the court said, no, they can't be forced to do that. The Supreme Court has, has defined expression sort of broadly. So if this was just a, like a, a kind of a, a normal commercial interaction, where there wasn't the expressive component. So the, you know, the wedding cake, we've heard a lot about the wedding cake maker, mm-hmm. um, uh, the web- website designer, these things that fall under, basically under the First Amendment because it's expression. They get, there, there are certain protections that, that come along with that. And that's, and that's the line of cases. That this yeah, is, do you this agree with the ruling today? You know, I'm, I'm not sympathetic to the designer, the website designer personally. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, free speech cases are full of really unsympathetic people generally that's how this kind of this kind of law exists and so the, that's sort of the argument is that the at the kind of the ugly speech and the, and and those kind of things get protected so um so i i i mean i see the first amendment argument for it I'm yeah not, i think i thought Gor- i'm Gors- not like yeah i'm not sort of cheering the outcome i'm not sympathetic yeah to i the, think that gorsuch the um uh ruling here was really interesting and um actually quite well rendered uh, particularly because he goes absolutely insane on the Sotomayor descent, which is very, very funny. And, you know, he starts off by saying, it's difficult to read the descent and conclude we're looking at the same case. And at one point, I, this is my favorite, um, hmm. in some places, the descent gets so turned around about the facts that it opens fire on its own position. <laughs> for instance, <laughs> for instance, while stressing that a Colorado company cannot refuse, quote, the full and equal enjoyment of its services based on a customer's protected status, the dissent assure, assures us that a company selling creative services, quote, to the public does have a right, quote, to decide what messages to include or not to include. But if this were true, if, but if that were true. What are we even debating? <laughs> that was the Gorsuch thing. So the thing that, that I, mm. when I'm hearing these conversations, 
Um, we, we I've talked about um, Ellie Wiesel, Ellie Mistel or whatever, who, who said, this is Plessy versus Ferguson. So it's a nice all over again. We're back to Plessy versus Ferguson. And I couldn't believe it took him that long to get to Plessy versus Ferguson. Sure. But it seems to me that the distinction that is being elided here in all these cable news conversations, and I'm very much with Damon on this. I'm, don't, I'm not sympathetic to this woman at all. But it is the difference, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, Damon, here, is that she cannot refuse to provide services for this person based on their personal traits and their immutable characteristics or their sexual preferences or whatever. But the actual, like, let's do a website that has this message in it, she can, right? So is that the, di- that's the difference, right? Yeah. So she could, she could, she has to, um, she would, she would have to sell website services, but can't be compelled to, um, this particular expressive speech that's part of it. Like you can't um, do, you can't, like if somebody comes to you as a website designer in Brooklyn and says, hey, I'm Fred Phelps Jr., godhatesfags.com, <laughs> I want to update it. And you say no, <laughs> right? You can say, yeah, I don't want to do that thing. <laughs> and say, well, no, 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 one is bad and one is good. I understand that that's basically the argument people make, that one is- I'm not even sure actually, because if it's just like renewing a website domain. Yeah, I don't know. But just like redesigning a, it. Redesigning is different, I think. Yeah, because the design yeah, is that, not very that's good. interesting. Damon, didn't, didn't you do a piece like this about tattoos at one point? Like uh, like compelling tattoos or am I just like inventing stuff from my favorite No, there's groups? a whole, um, well, there's, yeah, I mean, I th- th- well, there's a lot of First Amendment stuff about tattooing where tattooing hadn't been, you know, this is, this is actually tattooing was one of the early kind of expressive conduct um uh, expansions of the first amendment or it's one of the one of the areas where that happens so you know tattoo parlors are a classic thing where like the town doesn't want it so they just use any kind of normal zoning or just kind of basic regulatory obstacles to kind of keep them out or push them off into some you know you can't be in the center of town you got to be in some far-flung industrial region where there's no foot traffic or whatever you know basically harass no, no problem with this go on <laughs> harass but you know essentially using state power to harass a business owner because they don't like the kind of the kind of business and mm-hmm. that stuff basically all can pass muster. There is a whole, there's a whole, we were talking about strict scrutiny earlier. There's something called the rational basis test, which is that when a business owner says, well, you know, I think I'm, you know, these regulations are unfair. Um, they don't make any sense. They're arbitrary, capricious, whatever it is. And I'd like to, you know, go to court and challenge them. The courts basically put the thumb on the scales in favor of the regulations, the rational basis test, which is just extremely deferential a strict scrutiny is so judicially aggressive rational basis is ex- extremely judicially deferential and the regulation is going to pass muster but because tattooing has an expressive conduct tattoos are protected under the first amendment suddenly you can't do that kind of stuff did anymore. you have a hard time yeah, finding someone to do that big swastika tattoo in your back or was that pretty easy <laughs> because you know the people from writing about it like where to go <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's garing, you garing tattoos in upstate New York. The connections you can make on the dark web these days, Michael, are just fantastic. <laughs> yeah. you know, um, yeah. It's also, it's one of the good swastikas, not the bad swastika. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, it's the reverse one. That. It's about India. Yeah. That's why I love yeah. when people say that. It's an, <laughs> Indi- it's an Indian <laughs> symbol. It's like, it's, it's also it's the my, Nazi you know, symbol. The, the, the G.G. Allen phase. Outlaw scumfuck. So, Damon, I mean, just to wrap up on this particular case, so are you at the point where you have a sensibility as to whether or not this is going to be kind of a broadly consequential decision? Um, or is it perhaps a lot more narrow than most people appreciate? Well, I think it's, it's, it's 
showing us what what the what the future looks like with this Supreme Court. And I think, you know, this is not really an original idea to me. I think yeah, I heard David French say it, I've heard others say it, which is that there is a kind of a, a culture war truce a little bit happening, um, whereby cases like Bostock, where the federal civil rights laws are going to apply to to gay persons. So employment discrimination applies to gays that falls under the unaccounted of sex law. And that was, you know, something Gorsuch was part of that. Um, so that so you have you have gay marriage, you have federal civil rights protections for gays. Um, but then on the other hand, the court is going to recognize all sorts of these exemptions, these kind of faith exemptions, um, um, if you want to call it that. Um, these like, yes, these there's these broad legal protections, but, you know, this this designer, this person, that person doesn't want to be compelled to be participate. So we're going to give them that, give them that out. And so I think it's, 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 it's important in that way, not so much for the exact reasoning of the case, but it, it, it shows us the kind of thing we can expect, assuming that, you know, that obviously that the, the kind of majority on the court stays where it is, it's interested in doing this. So I think we're going to see a lot more of those kind of, those kind of decisions. Yeah, it, it's, it's interesting. I mean, after, I think the last time we talked was probably after um, the abortion decision, which kind of similarly animated a great deal of consternation. And at the time, when people were reading that decision, there were bits of the decision uh, or the the concurrence, I believe it was, from Thomas. Or did he write the 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 lead opinion on that? No, that was Alito. Okay, um, but so but it was the Thomas concurrence where he went into some detail about um, gay rights issues and suggested that there are certain things here that ought to be reevaluated. Uh, yes. And there was a yeah. great deal of concern that very soon there would be a case where gay marriage was essentially dismantled um, at the federal level. Um, do you see this at all as an indication that people who were concerned about that trend were right to be concerned? Or does anything over the course of the, the past couple of months suggest to you that, that yeah, folks were freaking out and it was probably unwarranted. Like the the change is perhaps a little less severe than most of them suspect, especially well, if I, there is this kind of culture war truce. Well, I will say that the 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 logic of the Dobbs decision, uh, despite Alito's hand waving to the contrary, really would undermine the gay rights and gay marriage decisions. I mean, I don't think there's any question about that. If that if the Dobbs logic about the due process clause and substantive due process was retroactively applied to gay rights cases in which Alito dissented, um, those cases would have come out differently. So the the critics of the abortion ruling who who pointed that out, I mean, they 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 were correct as a legal matter that Alito said, oh, well, we're not going to, that stuff's done. This is just about abortion. But the the rationale of the abortion case could absolutely be targeted against those other cases is, is you know, the gay rights, a, a deeply rooted tradition, the way the court defines it, and, you know, Glucksberg and all, and all these tests. So, um, so as a, as a legal matter, that sort of does stand there, that opinion, the Dobbs opinion is there, it is there, it could be, it could be a weapon, it could be used for those purposes. Um, I, I could see Alito going back and going after those cases. Thomas, you know, he write, he, Thomas does this all the time where he's like, this whole vast swath of american jewish creative <laughs> prudence is totally wrong and here's how we should you know go back to first principles so he he does this a lot 
Um, and the court takes him up on it sometimes too. And so that was one of the things that was interesting about that. It was sort of, that was sort of a year ago was sort of the first time that there was a little bit of more broader kind of, oh, hey, this Thomas guy is, he's got these, we, you know, we kind of, maybe we didn't give him enough, you know, credit for thinking about a lot of stuff. And, um, he's got some big ideas and boy, they're kind of scary. I mean, he was always sort of demonized, but not taken, you know, maybe as seriously as a thinker. And, you know, he's laid out these, 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 you know, kind of plans for changing all sorts of parts of the law. And, you know, we have seen some of it happen. So I think that probably we're not going to see the gay rights cases, you know, revisited anytime soon. But is there an appetite among some members, some of the conservative and scare quotes, you know, members of the courts to do that? I think, I think there is. There is from Thomas. I would think there is from Alito. I don't see Roberts doing something like that. I don't see Kavanaugh doing that. But, um, you know, if, if abortion was a precedent for a couple decades and then was gotten rid of, I mean, people could say, you know, these gay marriage cases, which they, they do think were wrongly decided. They think the due process clause, the, the word liberty doesn't mean liberty, and it certainly doesn't mean you can go after state lawmakers. The Supreme Court has no business going after state legislatures and what they're doing and all these unenumerated rights. I mean, there's a, there's a very strong conservative, legal conservative point of view that all that stuff is really wrong. Thomas kind of laid it all out, and he, a lot of people do agree with him. And that's a view that goes back to Robert Bork. Roberts has expressed it at various points. Scalia certainly believed in it. So really titanic figures in conservative legal thinking do feel that way. So it's there absolutely was some kind of like hysterical hand wringing, you know, a year ago. But at the mm. same time, like there was there's something there too. And if you look at just the, you know, there's these are become political questions, I guess, maybe is what I'm trying to say. Um, is there a political appetite among the court? to go after some of this stuff because legally what they did in Dobbs, um, that could be used against those, those, those other cases. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you, you coming by to, to, to chop it up with us a little bit. If, if I had a, a parting question, this is a bit of a French goodbye, oh, I suppose. Oh, God. Um, I oh. would, I would ask you, it's one thing for the liberal justices on the court to be outnumbered in their voting, but in another respect, as we've been talking here, I mean, there just seems to be not a great deal that's impressive about the way that they're representing their arguments um, in these descending opinions. I mean, were good choices made in appointing these particular people to the bench? Dear God. Are they, are they good justices? Whether or not one agrees with their Small point question. of view, are they good? Well, so, so what uh, is global warming? <laughs> you, like, how do you measure that? I'm just, yeah. I mean, just given what we've seen, given the body of, of of work here, are they doing a good job? I'm a I'm a fan of Sotomayor's on some issues, and I disagree with her on others. But um, you know, when when she's going strong in the Fourth Amendment, um, I, I think it's great. And you see this kind of Sotomayor Gorsuch Fourth Amendment alliance in some cases. That's that's. As a, as a good thing on the court. And she's the, she's, if you care about criminal justice stuff, she's the best on the court right now. Um, it'd be great if other justices were kind of keeping up with her on that. Including Clarence um, Thomas. It, well, Thomas is awful yeah. on, mm. on those, on those issues. Mm. Um, and, you know, the originalism only takes him so far. Um, <laughs> he's, he's a, like a law and order kind of conservative. Uh, that's a whole other, you know, conversation of the, you know, the limits of that of that approach, even when it's greatest proponents, you can say, "Hey, what about this? What about this?" You know, 
Um, so I, I'm, I'm not gonna, you know, disparage them, I think in, in those terms and, 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 and justice, uh, you know, KBJ, I, I, I liked her during her confirmation hearings. I think give her some, you know, I'm, I'm willing to give her some, give her some more time before I'm, before I'm, you Render know, judgment. Yeah. before I'm rendering judgment. Yeah. Okay. Um, but, and, and look, and Kagan is, is the, is the kind of the, the more unpredictable of the, um, the so-called liberal, liberal justices. She's the one you see kind of crossing the ideological aisle and voting with the uh, conservative bloc. You kind of see that. And so that's, you know, that's often a good, just a good sign um, when there's some. She's quite clever. Uh, yeah. Unpredictability. I, I oh, yeah. These are, these are, these are all very smart, talented people. Uh, um, not all of them, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. Eight out of nine is not bad. <laughs> <laughs> well, David, we appreciate you. We admire you. I'm grateful for you uh, stopping by to chat a little bit and look forward to uh, to our next entanglement, our cosmic entanglement, intimate cosmic entanglement. <laughs> the, the only kind. The only kind. Yeah, well, kind. I, it's always, always a pleasure. Thanks very much for having me. I appreciate it. We, 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 we know of new methods of attacking. All right. Well, yeah, what else are we going to do? What we got going on? Can we, can we talk about affirmative action? We got, some, we got some questions coming out. We, we do we questions. need to talk about that? Let's talk yeah, about that. Yeah, yeah. What do we want to talk about? We want to talk about how you are not a black person. Yeah. And how you're <laughs> going to answer I'm these. Just a, you're a person. I'm just a person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, like I don't know if else. you read the Supreme Court today, but you're not, you're, you're three-fifths of a person. And it's never changed. And you're always going to be that way. Let me ask you a question. I'm going to ask both of you this question. Because one is kind of a precedent thing. Do you know of any other Supreme Court case, and there might be some I'm not thinking of, in which the verdict comes down in a whole class of people, elite people, um, say, how can we subvert this in public? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's affirmative action one. is like, there are literally, yeah, yeah. The, the, the Supreme Court, highest court in the land says, this is unconstitutional. And every one of these universities are either saying publicly, a lot of said it publicly, or saying it privately that, we need to find a way to subvert this ruling, which is kind of mm. crazy. As a matter of fact, I mean, that's what has happened. And it's what we've talked about or I've talked about uh, on this podcast and certainly written about in K through 12, right? Because this was declared illegal by the uh, Supreme right, Court right, in right. like in late aughts. And so what did people come up with? They actually came up with things that were better um, on one level than looking at things by race, which is to look at things by class. What are we actually doing here at this point in 2023, right? Um, <laughs> when Los Angeles and California are like talking about reparations for slavery, which didn't exist in California. No. Um, what are we- <laughs> act- It was only in David Horowitz's Details, dreams. Yeah. Matt Welch. Yeah. Details. I mean, yeah. then there's an argument. Oh, oh yeah. Okay. Slavery didn't exist in California. I'm saying the argument did because it was David Horowitz yeah. just taking it around to California. Um, but uh, it's, it's, so like, how do these things, uh, how, what are we trying to do? We're trying to help people who are in worse circumstances- uh, presumably of circumstances that are not uh, that they sort of inherited their life uh, lives were uh, came about in a place of disadvantage, right? And like in the Moynihan LBJ thing from the mid '60s, it's yep. like they weren't at the same place in the starting line, right? Yep. This is a, a centerpiece in DEI equity type of discussions. Well, um, then you would talk about class, mm-hmm. and so what happened on the K through 12 level is that people said, in the case of New York, which is the one that I know know best, is like, okay, we're going to reserve 52. 2% of our seats for people who either qualify for school lunch, so therefore they have X amount of the median 
poverty level or they're uh, homeless or they are learning English as a second language or, you know, they have a bunch of different things that are stand-ins for their place in class and we're going to have those seats up. This is pretty um, widespread now. Um, so I think that those policies don't tend to be that great either for a bunch of other reasons, but it, but people found a way to be creative to try to fix what they see as yeah. a problem, which is that there's an underrepresentation of of people who are disadvantaged in places that we uh, perceive to be as excellent or good. Um, and so, but, but race is an amazingly bad measure for disadvantage. Yes, it is. Katanji mm -hmm. Brown Jackson has these numbers, which I have some problems with in her dissent that try to demonstrate that it's a very good uh, measure. Well, that is, I mean, a growing black middle class, et cetera. And she, of course, uses the measure of wealth and not, not um, income. And at the very beginning, the third page of her dissent, she um, creates a scenario. And it's a scenario that I'm going to read to you and I'd like you both to respond to. Imagine two college applicants from North Carolina, which is where this uh, case that she can comment on, not the Harvard one, is based. John and James both trace their families' North Carolina roots to the year of UNC's founding in 1789. Both love their state. I don't know why that matters. And want great <laughs> things for its people. What a total padding of this. It's so M weird. Make it longer. Uh, both, yeah. both want to honor their family's legacy by attending the state's flagship educational Again, superfluous. John Howard mm -hmm. would be the seventh generation to graduate from UNC. He is white. James would be the first. He is black. Does the race of these applicants properly play a role in UNC's holistic, she keeps using this word holistic, merits-based admission process? Okay. Well, I'm going to add a second <laughs> one to this. John and James. Uh, but the answer to her question is no. No, I mean, yeah. I, I, logically, it'd be no. But I want to add a different John and James. Um, John is uh, from North Carolina and is uh, from a a family that has never pulled themselves out of uh, poverty. Uh, there's a lot of white poverty in in uh, North Carolina, and he is white. And James uh, is applying. And his father uh, was the minister of foreign affairs in Jamaica. And uh, they moved because he had a job at UNC Chapel Hill or something. And uh, he is black. Well, why don't you put that one on there too? Because it starts to collapse this idea that race is the thing that you can always use. Well, but that's rare. That's rare. It's like, first of all, it's increasingly less so. And as Camille mm -hmm. pointed out, um, what was it? The Skip Gates thing that, that, was it mm -hmm. he that pointed out that the number of of black students that were in his yeah. classes were almost all Caribbean, and it's like that. I've I know some one person in particular who uh, grew up very privileged, um, is non-white, uh, is uh, from a Caribbean background, uh, went to Harvard, and um, that was great for Harvard. They ticked the box. This is a person who had every advantage in life and shouldn't have had any other advantage. I had another friend. This is true who went to Harvard and she wasn't that bright. Um, I hung out with her one time and, uh, hung out with her, uh, you know, the, 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 the finer <laughs> points, I'm not going to pat it. Like it's a Jackson descent, right? I think her father was literally, and that's where I came up with that example. I think her, her father was like the, like Mexican charged affair or something at the embassy or he was some, you know, very well-known person in Mexican politics um, or Spanish politics. And, and she was, you know, white as snow. 
and she had an elaborately Hispanic last name, right? But that doesn't mean anything, right? I mean, if you go to Latin America and you look at this, uh, particularly like in, in Venezuela, when Hugo Chavez became a uh, uh, dictator, authoritarian, then dictator in 1999, he was the first native, right? He was the first person of native heritage. That was a big deal. And he was overthrowing the sort of white oligarchy that had run Venezuela for years. Something to that. It, you go down, they just, you know, I know a, a Venezuelan and he has a Norwegian name. You know the same person, right? Yeah. It's like, huh? And white as white, white can be, comes to America and then applies to colleges as a Hispanic. It's, it's insane, right? I mean, that's, that, the imprecision of this stuff is like, whoa, 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 and then they lie about this and say, no, 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 we, we, there's a range of factors. Well, look at the data that's included in this decision mm -hmm. of who gets into Harvard and uh, how disadvantaged you are to be very smart and very Asian. I mean, to respond to the hypothetical, if we're talking about two people applying and one is seven generation UNC and the other is seven generation, all presumably in America, um, nobody goes to college. Mm -hmm. I am the chancellor. I'm the decider of that college. I'm doing the, the no college. hundred percent, but that's nothing to do with race. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Nothing that, to do with race. That person just kicked that's exactly ass. Right. And get, also yeah. this idiotic um, uh, scenario does not entertain because it presumes that they're both equal, right? In every way. It does not entertain that they both get into college. You fucking mm -hmm. dummy. In most places. In most places. <laughs> it's a state okay. school, right? Yeah. And I mean, this idea of it, like, yes, you do take... Uh, things into consideration because some of it shows character. Race never shows character. If mm -hmm. you are black and you're James Meredith, that shows an enormous amount of character. Somebody who stood and said, I am going to Ole Miss and, and, and against throngs of hateful racists that wanted to murder him. That shows more character than, you know, almost anyone in the latter half of the 20th century. It's fucking unbelievable. What these in George Wallace standing in the door and there are two, the girl and a guy who are going to school that day. And she went on to, to great things too. And he's preventing her and, and you know, if they federalize National Guard to allow her to go to school. That's an amazing amount of character. And I would, I would consider that too. But I'm not considering her race as such. I'm considering the person and what they do and what that person does. Because I don't know why this is so complicated because when you make this um, comparison here, John and James, and they go back to 18... 1789 beyond the fact that they both could get in the the white and the black is not the interesting data point the data point is seventh generation to graduate first right. person ever you just blew up your own case because mm -hmm. you've made a case and i think it's kind of a sleight of hand because you're like well of course i would and they, it makes you think that you would you, you're saying well race might be the reason that, that happened but it's not the reason i'm picking you and people right. can't separate those things and, and even there, like the, the reason why it happened, <laughs> like the reasons are complicated, They're also enormously complicated. complicated. Yeah. You get a generation or two removed from the horrible thing that happened and people's circumstances changed dramatically. I think even, even in her opinion, she talked about like wealth creation during, um, during the period of the civil war or after the civil war and talked about like slaveholders and their wealth after the Civil War. Well, what do you think happened to their wealth after the Civil War? I mean, they were they were many of them were decimated. Um, it's it's complicated. There were plenty of people who were white Southerners who didn't own slaves. There is this 
oft-repeated um, quote, which appears in her um, dissent as well, uh, where it says something about uh, how slavery um, was uh, corrupted the slaveholder and the slaves, that it dehumanized both of them. Well, yeah, well, what do you think it did to like the rest of the people who were were around, like the various Southerners who lived there, who were trying to eke out an existence in a part of the country that was profoundly poor um, and who had to compete against slave labor. Things weren't particularly good for them at that period of time either. Um, And even still, again, I I mentioned earlier the income disparity between whites and Asians, that we can look at that on a regional basis as well. There's a profound income disparity between people who live in the Northeast and people who live in various parts of the South. And it is extraordinary. It, it rivals the income disparity that one would see between whites and blacks. Why doesn't anyone give a fuck about that? It's like that? cheaper to live there. To get Why isn't she interested? Well, of, but, but this is always the case. The yeah. differences are material. There are differences in the p- individuals are not the same. There is no equity amongst us. The three of us here on the podcast were fundamentally different in a lot of important ways. Really? So one wouldn't expect the outcomes to be the same. Why would anyone expect outcomes to be the same for blacks and whites collectively? It's obscene. The, the fundamental premise that these people are actually promulgating here is wrong. It doesn't make any sense. And what I see with them evading the moral implications of the, of the particular philosophical positions that they're taking... Um, is really, really telling. It's amazing how little I am seeing people actually interf- engage in a meaningful way with the actual philosophical arguments that are being made and the legal arguments that are being made in support of ruling against affirmative action here. Like yeah. when people talk yeah. about equality under the law, there is, there is almost no engagement with that. Instead, it is this preposterous hyperbole about white supremacy winning. Are you are you kidding? Like the basic idea being we want to treat what conservatives are advocating for, and I, I keep seeing it over and over again, they want people to be treated equally regardless of their race. They also are broadly supportive of some sort of affirmative action policy that is geared towards helping people who come from difficult backgrounds. If that is what you want, conservatives are on board. You could pass a federal law that like mandated this kind of thing. I wouldn't support it because I'm I'm a limited government guy and I don't really want there to be a federal law to do it. But in general, do I support that kind of policy at the university level? Yeah, in general, I do. I do want to see people who are first gen first the first generation in their family to like go off to university and do something productive. I want to see that. What I don't want to see is this gross and deplorable insistence on asserting confidently, stridently, as a matter of just the essential characteristics that my children, on account of the way that they look, are necessarily disadvantaged and necessarily need your help in order to attain some high level of success. That any scheme wherein merit is the principal thing that we're looking at as the criteria for whether or not you gain admittance to our program or whether or not you gain the, the, the promotion at the job. Well, we got to take your race into account. And you know what? You're pretty good for a black girl. Are you kidding me? Who thinks that this is a, an appropriate standard, that this can't have pernicious consequences? I don't. 
it is very telling that Katanji Brown Jackson and her colleagues like, do not enter, enter, engage with any of the potential defects, um, the downside risk of their policies, that she just presumes, again, preposterously, it's like magic. If we do these things, we will eventually achieve racial equity nirvana, and all people will be equal with respect to outcomes. There will no longer be quote-unquote racism. It's completely absurd. It makes absolutely no sense. And I am delighted that, that it is at least really complicated with respect to the polling. Um, there's not overwhelming support for these policies. No. This isn't a hill that these people should want to die on. to the opposite. I, I mean, th- this, um, I've been reading through this very quickly. And I did this earlier too. But, you know, there's a long history lesson about uh, Jim Crow, basically. And about all of these hideous policies that created... Uh, Jim Crow and a two-tiered system in America. All of this seems mm-hmm. to be pretty right on. That seems about right. And, you know, I agree with her when she spends 10 pages out of 29 setting up the history. Mm-hmm. And then she says, well, you know, okay, so why are we talking about history? And and this is a section B starts after history speaks. I don't, again, I don't know what that means. In some form, <laughs> it can be heard forever. Well, well, yeah, what? of course it can be heard forever. But, but what does that mean in your jurisprudence that, unlike Sandra Day O'Connor said in 2003, there has to be an end point to this. And she suspected it'd be 25 years. We won't need these programs anymore. And again, as I said before, how wrong she was. Um, that people would even think that. It's gotten more intense than people's uh, you know, uh, desire to go out in the streets and protest the stuff and go f- freak out on cable television is a thousand times more... Um, you know, severe than it was in 2003. Because um, that suggests that she wants to do it forever. In some form, it can be heard for other, forever. And the, the race-based gaps that first developed centuries ago are echoes from the past that still exist today. By all accounts, they are still stark. And then she goes through a series of numbers, um, mm-hmm. a number of which I'm very skeptical of. Um, you know, the excess deaths and uh, uterine cancer and, you know, black women who get this at, at a massively high rate. Well, sure, that might be true. I don't know if that's true. The presumption in just saying that is that it's it's racism, right? It's all it's all slavery. It's it, all Jim Crow. Or, or that <laughs> or that it's two removes where it's economic and economic itself mm-hmm. is 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 based in ra- the racist past. If you acknowledge that and then you say like 80 million excess uh, black years for black people, 80 million excess years of life lost from just 1999 to 2020, 80 million excess years. And it's going on about the health outcomes, blah, blah, blah. And a case about the University of North Carolina. And a case about the University of North Carolina. This is an argument that is born out of 2020. This is a 2020 argument. It's not, I don't think this would happen. No matter the justice, it would have happened in 2003. Even if she was on the court in 2003, send her back in time and put her there. This is something that is like, let me establish, because I know that The Guardian is going to reprint the whole thing, which they did. Um, this is the creed de corps about the problems of being black in America, which, uh, fine, I'm, you, I'm not going to disagree with the specifics of, of the past, but this is all starting with the presumption that a sort of discriminatory policy. And if you even agree with this stuff, you have to acknowledge it's discriminatory policy and saying like this 
um, Asian immigrant should not get into the school. He's got another place to go. Um, this black student should with lower test scores or whatever it might be. That if we do that endlessly, it will solve problems. And this will kind of over time ameliorate this, which it has not done. And it does not seem to be doing because specifically it's this, this trick where you talk, talk about black wealth and that's the accrual of wealth and, and land, et cetera, rather than talking about income because incomes have been, those gaps have closed. And that's an important thing to point out, right? But if you don't, if you throw that stuff to the wayside and you just say, well, well, it's still as bad as ever, you also would have to contend with the fact that there are policies and similar policies to the one at UNC have been in place for a very long time. So what has happened over those years? Well, if we it, can't cr crack the edifice of white supremacy. Okay, well, then you have, then, then this is not going to solve the problem. And maybe we have to look somewhere else. If, if the disparities of white supremacy hang in the balance of this case, show us how the applications of affirmative action have helped that. Yeah, I think that's perfectly reasonable. To, and look, I think there's a lot of people that come to these arguments from her the same perspective in good faith and say, look, I mean, you've had this advantage and why don't you step back, right? I just, that's not number one, how it's applied. And even if it were applied, I don't, I don't agree with the premise, but that's not how this is applied. You see in the New York city schools, you see, um, you know, upper middle class, <coughs> quote unquote, minority families, um, getting spots that should be reserved. If you follow the same logic, I'm not saying this is right or wrong. That should be reserved for people from the projects. It doesn't happen. I'm, t I'm telling you as a fact in a, in a small way, a fact that I know about in a small way that that is not who gets into a lot of, for instance, private schools. They have a rainbow of people who have lots of money. There is a <laughs> rainbow of wealth. There's black wealth. There's Hispanic wealth. There's European wealth. It's all over the place. Asian wealth. But we've divorced it so much actually helping individuals and saying, how can we help these individuals like pull themselves out? I'll give you an example of this. In, in, in hiring, I made an argument one time at a company that I will not name. I made an argument one time is that when you're going out and fulfilling um, the Benetton ad to, to, to put out, you know, here's everybody who works on something. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and they're of all different, wonderful colors, right? No one ever goes into the projects and just says, I don't give a fuck if you went to Columbia J school. Are you smart? Are you good on camera? Do you have interesting ideas? Because a lot of the shit that's there, I'm sure, that is going undiscovered because they're like, let's get the black person from Columbia. Let's get the black person from Harvard. Let's get the black. And now that would say, well, look, that's exactly what, what uh, Katachi Brown Jackson is saying. I assure you, my friends, that this happens there too, in the sense that they fill those ranks with people that are upper middle class, that do very well, and parents have done very well. Sure, there's some people, but it's not ameliorating those problems in the sense that you go to the projects and you get everybody out there who's 20 years old and say, are any of you going to college? Some of them are going to college. Any of you going to Harvard, Yale, Brown? No, probably not. Probably not because they, 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 we're, we have a symbolic thing that shows that we care that we take people who are well-to-do 
and put them in places at, uh, we have a, a friend of mine have a, have a contest and this is not race based, but it, 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 it always is the same, no matter the race, is that if you see someone writing a stupid fucking article, you always do the uh, LinkedIn lookup. Yeah. <laughs> and then you- Your friend uh, is named Michael Moynihan. Uh, he's one of the people in this. Yeah. <laughs> there is actually somebody that does it. For me. And it's always Columbia J School. It's always some elite uh, private school or prep school or like, you know, Bronx Science or Stuyvesant or something like that. And it's always the same. It's just the same slate of people. And those are the people that are getting hired. And those are the people that are in high dudgeon at a dinner party tonight saying, can you believe the fascist court? And they think they're so great because they hire a rainbow of people in their own company. And they're a rainbow of Yale graduates. They're not, they're not people that come from any different class. This triggers a thought of mine, uh, which is that I always kind of ignored uh, affirmative action as a uh, topic that I cared about. I, I yeah. sense that it was wrong because it's positive discrimination. We shouldn't discriminate, uh, certainly uh, in the law, and there should be equal protection under the law. Mm -hmm. But I also didn't want to make a big fuss about it um, because um, cowardice, um, but also I'm of the age where the people who made the biggest fuss about affirmative action in the 1980s and early 1990s um, overlapped a lot with people who would then develop or had at the time pretty odious ideas yeah. about the races, about Mexicans, about yeah. blacks, whatever. You, you, uh, when did you stop reading V Dare? Uh, I mean, Ron Unz. <laughs> Ron Unz is a special case, right? Um, and he's a lunatic. And he's part and parcel of, uh, of all of this. And so um, the way you just put it, Michael, it's a, it's a cheap way yeah. for white liberals, progressives, people don't even think of themselves uh, uh, necessarily all that political, but they are just sort of swimming in that or riding in that political stream. It's the cheapest possible way to signal that you're on the good team and you're not on the Ron Unz team yes. is to say that, well, of course we should have affirmative action. I'm not going to think about it. I'm not going to actually write about it or talk about it. And here I'm not even talking about me. I'm talking about this is not a topic of, of conversation except for this week. Yes. And we'll see how long it lasts. I doubt that it's going to last as long as the Dobbs um, sure, sure. Yeah. Ruling, which has profound impacts on on people and on freedom. And I think it's it's uh, interesting and and uh, and troubling on, on, in many respects in which this case is not. Um, but it's the it's the cheap, lazy kind of version of that virtue signaling. Yeah. Um, and I, I'm seeing a lot of people being challenged on that, maybe for the first time. Um, publicly, yeah. and they're not acquitting themselves particularly. No, no, well. no, but particularly on the, on the class stuff, because when you do point out that uh, so many of these Asian kids that are being passed over do come from first-generation immigrant families who don't have a lot of money and who literally, I mean, that's what you see always, and, and I've you know, talked about this ad infinitum um, at, at places like Stuyvesant and Bronx Science in Brooklyn Tech, et cetera. And this is just in New York City. But um, a friend of mine just sent me a tweet. I don't know if he knows that he sent me a tweet of a friend of mine, but we're gonna, uh, maybe I'll try to book this person live on the air here. Um, my friend, Jay, Jay Caspian Kang, um, who mm -hmm. does not agree with me politically, I don't think. I don't think he agrees with any of us. Mild way of putting it. But uh, Jay is a funny, funny man. And he is, I really like him a lot. And I used to work with him. But Jay wrote a piece for The New Yorker uh, tonight, newyorker.com. And, and, and it's funny, this friend just sent mm -hmm. this. I, I made the same argument earlier. Um, and this is the tweet linking to his piece. Wrote about the end of affirmative action and the very weird but expected fact 
that nobody's really talking about the Asian plaintiffs or the extremely mm-hmm. obvious discrimination they face. <laughs> yeah, it's true. And that's that's also, it's also true that dissents and, and, and everything else. I had a question for you, Camille, uh, which oh, yeah. is that, uh, well, first I wanted to say about, because this is a, a common um, retort that you're seeing um, from AOC and other people who are critical of this judgment. They're like, well, how come the Supreme Court didn't talk about legacy admissions? And I, I've got a good answer for that. That's not what was at issue in the nope. court case. Yeah. That's a pretty, so yeah. maybe find a way to litigate that. Um, <laughs> but secondly- bring, bring your case. I wouldn't care if legacy admissions went away. Yeah, no, I want I them don't not. Care. As, as Robbie Suave <laughs> pointed out, who's written about that, as has plenty of other people, as have plenty of other people at Reason over the years- um, that legacy admissions are ridiculous on many mm-hmm. levels. It's about donations. Um, and it's about donations. Yeah. And uh, like your terms are acceptable to us. <laughs> you want to eliminate <laughs> legacy admissions? Great. Let's sure. let's, uh, let's talk about okay. that. But the question I want to ask you, Camille, is what was it like for you? And what is your sense of the importance of the occasion that Clarence Thomas is out there writing as if he's been reading or talking to or influenced by Camille Foster and the broad kind of uh, race abolitionist crowd, or at least the race skeptical uh, crowd who look at race craft as this odious legacy institution of specifically racist previous laws and culture in America. What was it like? Is this an important like watershed moment for that in your eyes? Um, what, how does it feel? Um, I mean, I, I don't feel that way okay. um, because I, I know that in general, Clarence Thomas has been advocating for these perspectives for a long time. And in many respects, it's just kind of him, him winning the day. But he it's won the, the day. That when I read, it's a big, that's it, a big no, thing. And that's, listen, that's yeah. a, that's a big deal. I think that's consequential. I think it's indicative of where, where the country is in some respects at the moment, <laughs> although this is not, you know, a, a kind of democratic op- operation, it's the Supreme Court. But the Supreme Court, I think, is kind of reflecting the mood of the moment, exhaustion with a lot of these um, ideas. And it should just be, again, a coincidence because it's not them necessarily responding in a overtly political way to represent um public opinion, but this happens to correspond with, I think, a lot of exhaustion uh, about the the overemphasis on these various social justice issues. Um, and again, I think the the rather limp defense of affirmative action that you're actually seeing um, from a lot of different circles um, is is probably important and consequential as well. But honestly, to be to be totally candid, when I when I read um, Clarence Thomas and even when I read uh, a number of kind of conservative responses and and hosannas about this, uh, for me, like I, I see the defects. I see the places where they don't quite go far enough, where they're still um, far too invested in the race taxonomy, where mm-hmm. it's still a matter of you know my black experience and kind of using that as the reference, as opposed to leveling uh, the the better, more profound philosophical argument, as opposed to recognizing that what we're trying to undo here um, is not you know, quote unquote, systemic racism. It's not racial disparities. Um, I, I think that they are approaching certain insights and a, an appreciation for the fact that responding to discrimination with more discrimination like can't be the way out of this. Mm. 
But the actual way out of this, like no one is articulating, which is no. like, you have to get beyond the race bullshit. I mean, like, but people Clarence are Thomas, individuals. He talked like, that about is, that. That is the bottom line. He and referenced one has that. to recognize that. Camille, yeah. the, the first response, uh, this is from a nobody, uh, a first response uh, to Jay Kang's uh, tweet. And this is, this will drive you insane. Mm. Uh, thank you for your reporting. But I got to say, as a black person, it's getting harder and harder each day <laughs> to care about anyone else's problems. What? Yeah. Wow. I, I mean, it's amazing because with that, the, the race taxonomy, so it's become so important, right? Yeah. It, it, it allows you this kind of cloak where like, I okay, you might make good points, mm-hmm. but- I'm so invested in this idea. Tired, right? Yeah, I'm tired. I I don't give a shit if you're being discriminated against. That is a bad thing, Yep. Mm -hmm. That is, and not to, you know, it's so funny. People invoke Martin Luther King in all these um, dumb ways. But if you look at the nonviolent civil rights movement, and and I'm very hesitant to include the Panthers and um, people like that and, you know, other groups that weren't the Panthers in Mm -hmm. the civil rights movement. But to say that I don't care about your problems. I only care about mine as a race would be anathema to everything that was ever written. I mean, the phrase moral imagination does not, Mm -hmm. does not work. And it's not King. It's not, it's not just King. It's not, no, no, it's Ralph Abernathy. It, It is, I mean, it's a million people that, that had an almost kind of religious idea. It was definitely with, with Abernathy and, and, and King, but Bayard Rustin less so. But those people would choke if they saw things like this. It doesn't matter if they mm-hmm. were socialists or if they hated Vietnam. That's always the thing. It's like, you don't know the real king. It's like, yeah, but the real king, it's, it's, not, it's not about that. It's not about his economic policies. But the, there's so much tied up in believing in that narrative and always being kind of mm-hmm. married to that narrative is that the Katanji Brown-Jackson thing is literally a product of 2020. I said this before, but it, is, it reads like somebody who's trying to remind everyone how bad things are mm-hmm. so we can understand that this is the remedy. No, 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 you're a judge. You have to tell me if this is constitutional, if this is legal, if this right. is, I mean, right. sensible and the efficacy of it almost doesn't matter, right? I mean, it's like, I'm sure we could prevent crime by arresting entire neighborhoods of people and just never trying them. But yes. it's unconstitutional. It would probably make crime go away because that's what happened in fucking North Korea. But that's not what we're adjudicating here in front of the court. Is it constitutional? Is it legal? Is it like the, if it's sensible and efficacious, you can talk about it for sure. But that is not going to lead anything because it has to also be, you have to be able to pitch and hit, right? This is the National League's buddy. Like you, it has to be like efficacious and constitutional. And that is what 90% of that dissent ignores. It's like, mm-hmm. yeah, you know, I know you're telling me about this hideous legacy. We know about that legacy. I'm not somebody who shrinks from that at all. I mean, I'm fascinated by it. And, you know, I think that there's people that have done a very jo- bad job of politicizing that legacy in a way that unfortunately makes you kind of look at everything a bit cockeyed. Because you're like, wait a second, is this a bit of a 1619 kind of vibe going on here? Or is this kind of accurate? And I mean, I, what I read is that seems um, totally straightforward. But I don't think that, you know, when the Backy case came in front of the court in 1978, or the, 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 what was the case in 2003? I can't remember the name of it. 
that we didn't view race the way that we did today. Yeah. And I'm not saying that like, oh, we were so much better than, no, 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 we're better now. Yeah. Because things have improved a lot. But the general consciousness of race, which was like the collapse of affirmative action is the further institutionalization of white supremacy would not have been something that anyone would have said outside of the confines of certain departments and, and certain academic institutions. There is a temptation to view this. Um, I mean, temptation seriously among me um, to view this <laughs> as uh, the case for equity, the way that that term is now used and has been used over the last five to 10 years, um, getting a comeuppance at the Supreme Court. And literally, we've been, we've been talking probably even too much about KBJ's dissent, um, but that's what she's doing when citing these stats, yeah. these mm -hmm. global horror stats, yeah. um, is like, hey, equity, by which um, it's used in the activist sense of mm -hmm. outcomes are disparate. Yeah. We don't like those. They are, they are yes. definitionally, um, they point towards a certain institutional structure of racism. Um, uh that that should be enough. I point yeah. to the inequity, then therefore this solution must be legal and just, um, even if we don't know if the solution helps, um, is the argument. And that argument mm -hmm. lost six to three, pretty decisively, um, yeah. actually. at the There's rioting in France, <laughs> probably the worst rioting scene since the mid 2000s. Yeah, the video is crazy. Uh, wild. That has become a riot about um, racism about immigration, crime. About, uh, crime, et cetera. And the backlash I saw, I think it was on Le Monde or something, or Figaro, that said 70% of people um, want the army on the streets. Um, I don't know who the French Tom Cotton is. I don't know who the French Barry Weiss is, but somebody's getting fired uh, for asking that question and maybe it's writing about Sarkozini's going to be in jail. Yeah, well, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, little Sarko. Uh, but, you know, these are similar issues, right? In the sense that, you, but it's not entirely similar. People often assume that the Bagneux and all of these uh, immigrant places in France are only people that are from former quote unquote colonial holdings. Pied Noir, like the Pied Noir whites, you know, bringing over um, or, or, or traveling back to France along with Algerian natives, for instance, right? But no, no, I mean, there's immigration like all across Europe from all sorts of disparate places. And there's not 300 years of history of people in France in that sense, right? I mean, the, the colonial history is uh, pretty gruesome and it goes back very, very far. But they're very similar backgrounds, right? When we're talking about when you read that descent, and again, to go back to that descent, you could write a version of that in France. You could write a very, very similar version. If I said you get the exact amount of space and follow the kind of rhythms of it about housing, about wealth disparities, et cetera, you would get something very similar. It's not a uniquely American thing. And you don't also need that, you know, sort of people that came to France as slaves. I mean, a lot of these people came before, during, after the Algerian war, and they've had a pretty rough time. And it's beyond me to sort of try to explain why that is. It's just, you know, somebody who's an expert can do that. I mean, I have my assumptions and I've been reading about this for a long time. But if it's a short period of time like that, can you, you know, bring a case in France that's something similar? You have, you have to hire, you know, 20%, uh, you know, Algerians or people from former colonies or something like that. Has that happened in France? 
can you solve this problem with a legal solution like this? Because I can imagine that there's not a, a Sweden has no real colonial past. I mean, they do have a colonial past, but nothing in even close to France. And all the people that are there are not from colonial, former Swedish colonial holdings. I mean, St. <laughs> Bart's <laughs> was Swedish. That's, which is... The, really? Yeah, yeah. The capital of, uh, of St. Bart's is Gustavia, named after King Gustav. Um, but in all the street signs are actually weirdly in Gustavia, still uh, a Swedish one and an English one. These are people that came from Afghanistan, Iraq, etc. Problems are very similar uh, to the U.S. as far as um, massive wealth inequality. Uh, job opportunities. You do very similar studies. Uh, can you get a job if your name is Muhammad? You know, Al blah blah blah, and or if you're Par, um, you know, Ericsson or something, you're going to have the same. And we've done all these studies. They just borrow the American ones. And the point is, is that this stuff is really everywhere, and the solutions are not obvious ever. This is that was what bothered me about some of the commentary about this is if you get rid of this, you get rid of the solution. And I keep mm -hmm. banging on about this is that this is not clearly a solution because we have to get to the solution of why we need to lift people up in the first place. Well, because of racism. Okay. That was in the past. Let's just say that that's the reason you're in a shitty situation. What do we do now? So what do we do now? Like, well, um, cause I'll tell you what, there's some people in our universe that are trying with charter schools, things like that. And mm -hmm. looking at the root problems of these things and saying, how do we make this better? And they're called racist at every step. Uh, well, well this, yes. And, and yeah. it's like, if you're going to do, you know, a very racial curricula, it's like uh, all across the state, this, the, the racial curricula, that'll make everyone proud. That's not, that's not a solution. That's wildly off base. So anyway. It's also very one-sided uh, measuring things by the equity outcomes. Yeah. Um, if you want to measure anything by an equity outcome, look at COVID era education policies in K through 12. It was an absolute <laughs> disaster on equity outcomes, but people don't use that measure because it's not um, as interesting as uh, criticizing other stuff. Um, and um, until there's an, an, an actual equality of using the analysis, I'm going to color the criticism from that with some skepticism. Uh, just to, I just saw this, someone sent it to me, it just popped up that, um, and I'll show you the photo of this from Reuters, is that, um, speaking of Sweden and problems in Sweden, somebody uh, burned a Quran. <coughs> they do this a lot in Scandinavia. This has happened recently, and this is why Turkey was saying they were going to scuttle the deal uh, for Sweden to join NATO, because yeah. like some mm -hmm. fucking jackass Danish guy burned a Quran. Oh, somebody did it again. Yeah, um, uh, Paludan was his name. Some somebody did it again in Sweden. I don't know who it was. And there's photos here um, of Muqtada al Sadr's uh, followers in Baghdad in front of the Swedish embassy, oh. burning pride flags. Like, well, burning pride flags. There's a pride flag with a big slash through it. Like oh, I don't boy. know who produces these flags in Baghdad. Wait, are they the old ones or the new ones? No, no, they haven't gotten. They haven't. You can see that they haven't gotten the trans one yet. Oh, um, so it's fine then. Yeah, that's, we don't that's, care about those old ones. Those those old ones are an abomination. X through it. So Matt Walsh <laughs> is out there burning pride flags in Baghdad. <laughs> yeah, he's he's uh, he's in a local city council. Uh, yeah. <laughs> this is how you uh, properly dispose of those so that you can install the new ones. I think that's probably what's going on. Yeah, on hand. you just yeah. kindling. Yeah, yeah, look at that. I love that they're like pr they're pride flags printed from a fucking dot matrix printer. They're burning. <laughs> 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 
<laughs> guys like, I tell you what, these gays. It's like, what? What is? What do the gays have to do with the the burning of the Quran, ripping up the Quran? Jesus Christ! Everyone's insane. It explains itself. Come on. Yeah. It's all connected. It's all yeah. connected. Oh, they stormed the Swedish embassy. Did they? We're yeah. doing that again? Jeez. Yeah, it's like 1979, but with Swedes. Or 2006 or whatever. Uh, okay, yeah. All right. This is very, very odd. Every picture is a different, like, fabric. This is a picture of someone with, like, a vinyl uh, pride <laughs> fag that they're trying to burn. Like, you know, the Swedes, they're the gays. <laughs> we're going to burn them. Are they going to burn the John 316 guy's afro? Yeah, well, yeah. He's, he's, uh, he's safely in jail. He's, no, he's in the yeah. Kurdish region. He's in, he's in Northern Iraq. Yeah. Gosh, right. well, you know, it is, it's June 30th is the end of pride month. Um, what is your favorite gay memory there, Moynihan? Uh, when the people stormed the embassy. <laughs> that was pretty funny. Yeah. Um, yeah. the guy who burned or, or tore up the Quran, by the way, appears, his name is Salwan Momika and he is not a native Swede just for the, for the record. So. All right. Yeah. Camille, you All didn't right. share. You didn't share. Exactly. Um, you know me. Pride is earned. On the down you don't low. Get, you, don't, you don't just get <laughs> That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Prove yourself. Okay? Uh, yeah. Prove yes. yourself okay. and then detail the reasons why yeah. you are prideful. Yes. On on account of your achievements. Yeah. And being yeah. being gay or trans or whatever. It's not an achievement. It's actually pretty boring. I don't really care. It's pretty boring. I don't care. It's Unless we're sleeping together, I don't care about your sexual orientation at all. And this I, this I, is the way it should be. I think it's already <laughs> headed that way because most of the gay people I know are far more reactionary than I am. Like <laughs> yeah. just more reaction. I'm just like, this is not, there's not a political designation. It used to be like, you know, yeah. there's the gay people are going to be on our side as, you know, lefties. And that's not true at all. Like literally at all. <laughs> just, I'm, I'm trying to find a friend of mine who is gay and progressive. I can't find it. <laughs> yeah. okay. okay. All right. Okay. We, we, we know of new methods of attack. The Trojan horse. The fifth column. 